Casey, I just reloaded this page. I know we're not up to this yet. Tom, why do you give him bad ideas, Marco? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we should probably explain what's going on. Um, I mean, maybe. May, all right, so I'm I'm gonna try to make myself feel okay about this, knowing that how much crap you got last year. But I still think it's a little bit, a little bit weak sauce. We we had an agreement. <laughs> <laughs> This is the payback for two consecutive years of making me donate under duress because last year <laughs> I was recording analog and you two numb nuts were like, oh, we have to donate now, 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 now. And so I'm pretty I, sure that's an exaggeration of what happened. I do not recall typing the word now multiple times in a row. It, it, that was the effective message. Well, he, here's what happened. So we were talking about the St. Jude, you know, really FM uh, raising money for St. Jude during Child Cancer Awareness Month, uh, and uh, which is now September, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But so we we do donations as ATP hosts. We we do three donations, and we try to do them roughly at the same time, so they show up three in a row on the page, and we try to match amounts. And we're, you know, we decided ahead what, what the amount's going to be, and there it is. So last year, <laughs> Casey apparently was recording analog at the time we decided to do this, and under duress while meaning to allegedly type. Casey and Aaron Liss typed Casey <laughs> asterisk Aaron Liss, which followed was was followed by not only us giving him crap but all of you gloriously giving him crap <laughs> in your own donation <laughs> names and notes <laughs> that followed. So we ended up, you know, obviously it's amazing to raise a bunch of money for a really good cause, um, but to do it while being able to troll Casey is extra amazing. <laughs> so we had decided, you know, a couple weeks ago. All right, we're gonna we're gonna make our donations before. The show uh, on a certain date, and that date was a week from now. <laughs> Next week's show <laughs> is when we decided we were going to do it, and we had it in the calendar and everything. Like that's when we're going to make our donations right before the show, and then we'll, then we'll talk about the you know g- give it a big push during the show and everything. Well, fifteen minutes ago, <laughs> as we record, yeah, fifteen minutes ago, John you know writes in the chat like, oh, it's weird how the page laid out. Like some a complaint about the page layout, showing his donation at the top of the screen a week early. <laughs> <laughs> I was the top. I was the top donor, and I was like, you know, I, I mean, what have been worse is as the show approached, I would have been like, uh, guys, uh, are you gonna, are you gonna do the donation? Anyway, yeah, I got it wrong. I, I, it was right in the calendar. I think I'm the one who put it in the calendar. But the <laughs> reminder on my, the reminder on my phone came up, and it said, "Up, oh, time to donate." And I just went and did it blindly because I do whatever my phone tells me to do. And apparently, <laughs> whenever I, however I seried that reminder into reminders, I got the, the date wrong so i just did what my phone told me i did it a week early i'm sorry but anyway <laughs> i did it i posted the funny thing about the ui which made it look like i donated twice um but i didn't donate twice it was just once and then marco saw what i had posted and he immediately donated and so now it's two against one and now it's now casey has to <laughs> which which in and of itself was fine but like i was in the middle of like getting kids ready for bed and so on and so forth and all of a sudden my <laughs> phone is blowing up about how we're donating right now and i'm like what the hell we said next week <laughs> But okay, whatever, that's fine. And so as I'm running over to my computer, which I like, obviously this is not a big deal, but in the heat of the moment, I was like, ha, 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 ha. And so now I'm doing it under duress again. And we all saw how well that went last year. So I run over to my computer and as I'm sitting down to do the donation, somebody in the chat says, as punishment, you should donate $7,000 and one cent just to kick John off the top since it appears to not count a tie. 
if I did that, I'd be a jerk. But if Casey does it, it's funny. So I kind of did that and did $7,001. I still think it's kind of jerky when you do it. Oh, well, come on. It was funny. So the most amazing part of this, so obviously Casey's now on top, kicking John off, which I think is appropriate for what John did. But That was an honest mistake. I wasn't doing something malicious. On the other hand, Casey's was not an honest mistake. It was, in fact, a malicious act. But also, between because there was this delay as Casey was, you know, I guess putting your kids to bed is important. So because there was this small delay between our donations, someone else got in right between... <laughs> Mine and Casey's called Not Star Casey Star List for one dollar. <laughs> well done, oh. person, whoever you are. <laughs> we are we are a mess. All three of us are a mess. But. All right. Well, so let's let's have some unity here. How much has ATP the show donated to Saint Jude this year? <laughs> so twenty one thousand and one dollars. <laughs> <laughs> So as as I forget what we donated last year, I want to say it was $20,000 in sum between the three of us. And this year we thought, well, that seems silly because we were donating, what, $6,333.33 a piece. Nope. So, uh, no, so was it let, like 6667 or something? It's just like an ugly kind of number. So we're like, ah, let's, let's run it up. So we each donated, well, two-thirds of us donated seven. <laughs> couldn't even get it out with a straight face. <laughs> two-thirds of us donated $7,000. And your favorite and best host donated $7,001. Uh, so yeah, so uh, as much as we're poking fun at each other, I, I really do need to lock it up and get serious for a second. Uh, September, as Marco had mentioned, is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. And for the third consecutive year, Relay FM, of which we are all a part, even if this show isn't strictly speaking a part of it, uh, you know, it is there in spirit, if not by URL. Uh, so we are all trying to raise money for the third consecutive year for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. So what is St. Jude? It's this, it's this hospital that's in Memphis, which is where Stephen Hackett lives. And it is of the belief that, you know, hey, if kids can still die from cancer, then we need to still try to figure out ways to prevent that from ever happening ever. And so what's even greater about St. Jude is that St. Jude families pay nothing for healthcare there. And that goes beyond just healthcare. I believe, I believe that like some, some travel costs can be covered on occasion. Food can be covered in many occasions. They, they really take care of their families. And if you live in a country that makes sense, as in not America, this probably sounds like, yeah, okay, whatever. But I assure you for America, for Americans, this is a big deal. And so Stephen's family has probably received millions of dollars of healthcare and they have paid literally nothing for it. Um, that being said, it's because of donors like the three of us and like all of you that these families never receive a bill for treatment, for travel, for food, etc. Because as St. Jude says, all a family should have to worry about is helping their child stay alive. So for a little bit of context, the average cost to treat just one kid with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the most co common form of childhood cancer, is $203,000. So it's expensive. So with that said, to make this possible, about 80% of the funds necessary to sustain and grow St. Jude must be raised each year from donors like you, listener to my voice. So if you have a dollar to, to your name that you can send to kids that are fighting cancer and their families, please, please, if you can, stjude.org slash ATP. I'll spell it out for you. S-T-J-U-D-E dot org slash ATP. I cannot think of a better 
organization to give money to. Obviously, the three of us have given uh, what I'd like to believe is a fair bit of money over the years now. Um, Please, listeners, stjude.org slash ATP. And I will repeat my offer of last year. I will personally send you, no matter where you live in the world, I will personally use the United States Postal Service. So hope, hope you live in the States, but we'll see. <laughs> I was going to say, what are you going to do? Like get in a helicopter? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, no, no. I will personally send you a handful of ATP, not for sale, ATP stickers. Somebody go to Antarctica and invite Casey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will send you uh, a, a, a small batch of small batch ATP stickers uh, wherever you may be in the world. If you can top the current leading contender, let me, or let, let me check my notes here. The current leading donor, the List family. Oh, they seem very kind for having donated $7,001. So <laughs> if you can beat that by even one cent, send me a screenshot, send me your address, let me know, and I will put some ATP stickers in the mail. Additionally, I don't remember if we mentioned this last week, but if you donate $100 or more, you get a bespoke sticker pack from the Relay folks that have all sorts of fun stickers in Those it. Those are much less expensive stickers than ours. <laughs> that is true. Only one winner. Is going to like the Hunger Games. Only one winner is getting our stickers, and that is the top donor who, uh, I guess, the top donor who tells us about it. If someone donates a huge amount, but they're not an ATP listener, they don't count. So don't worry about them. You're just competing <laughs> with the people who contact us and say, hey, I donated this amount. It's more than the current top amount. Now, here's the question Do they have to donate more than, they don't have to donate more than those other people who don't know about ATP, right? They just have to be, right now, they just have to be Casey. And then they have to compete with the other ATP listeners. But if someone donates a million dollars, but they're not an ATP listener, that doesn't count, right? That's correct. But I will say, unless the other two veto this, if you are at any moment the highest donor, even if you don't end the month at the highest donor, if you are at any point, if you are the highest donor, send me your address and a screenshot just in case you know the donor list changes. And, and I will send you stickers, even if you don't persist as the highest donor. If somebody donates $7,002 right now and you want to send me your, your, your name and information, I will send you stickers. And then if 10 minutes later somebody donates $7,003, I'll send them stickers too. Just let That's me know. very okay. generous of you, but I feel like the game theory would say like you want people to go as high as possible knowing it's their <laughs> only shot. But that's fine too because they're just stickers after all. So please go for it. And by the way, you keep saying contact you, Casey. How do people contact you? Uh, well, the best way would probably be Twitter because I hate email. But uh, if you need to email me, you can find my email address on my website. And that's part of the game is finding my email. Address. So. <laughs> this is the second challenge. You yeah, have to find Casey on Twitter, which may be very difficult. <laughs> I know if you might not know what Casey's Twitter handle is or how to spell it. But uh, if you can find his website, also very difficult, then maybe you can get some contact information there. Yeah. And, yes. and and we know that like you know obviously not everyone is going to be able to donate this this kind of large sum. We also know that you know any every dollar helps. You know so even if you can just donate a dollar, great, donate a dollar. You can you know we know also our rough audience demographics, and we also know that you can probably do more than that. Um, and you know one thing to keep in mind, I I, I say this every year that uh, in roughly probably two weeks or so, there's going to be an Apple event, and they're going to unveil a new like thirteen hundred dollar phone that we're all going to pre order. Um, and, and when you're ordering a $1,300 phone that you might not necessarily need and you're thinking about, oh, do I, should I tack on like an extra 70 bucks for the, for the newest case? Cause it's slightly different that I, now I need a new $70 case, uh, or, a, you know, a new $150 Apple care plan or any other, you know, you look at how much you're going to pay in sales tax. It's going to be a hundred bucks. Think about like donate that kind of amount or more, because if you're willing to just kind of casually, you know, spend that for this frivolous, hobby that we all have of buying gadgets that we 
you know, quote need in finger quotes, but like really, do we really need to buy the new one? (laughs) Probably not. Um, So if you're if you're able to to do stuff like that, I encourage you to also be generous towards this because this is a really good cause. And yeah, give them like, you know, a few hundred bucks if you can or, you know, whatever you can do, uh, you know, give it a shot. Yep, just skip your morning coffee one day. Send five bucks to, to stjude.org slash ATP. So thank you for anyone who has donated, truly. Uh, where do we stand right now? We are at $105,000 or thereabouts, which is excellent. And uh, we are not that far away. What is it? 196000 for the year or for this month would be a total of a million dollars across all three years that Relay has been doing this. So I think we can get there. Again, we're at $105,000 right now. Let's do it. Stjude.org slash ATP. All right, let's do some follow-up. Uh, there's, uh, apparently, we ruined ri- Wirecutter. Do we have the same curse that like Connected did with photo sharing services or photo management services? Uh, because we bring up Wirecutter, and next thing you know, it's moved behind a paywall. I don't think that's ruining it. Like, uh, I mean, it's, we talked about finding product recommendations and mentioned Wirecutter. It's because it's a thing that people find valuable. Unlike IMDb, which does not deserve to be in any results for movie stuff because their <laughs> website is terrible, the Wirecutter does more or less what it says. You can disagree with their picks or whatever, but they're fairly straightforward. They explain their reasoning, and you know they have affiliate links to products, which is how they make money. Now they're behind a paywall. I don't begrudge them that. They're the type of site that I would be willing to pay for because they provide a valuable service. And the, the plans are you can do it for $5, $5 every four weeks, which is different than monthly. But anyway, um, if you're looking for a product... You could just say, oh, I'll just pay the five bucks and then cancel. Now, that said, the New York Times is somewhat notorious in our circles as being one of the few, quote unquote, good companies that makes it next to impossible for you to unsubscribe. You have to like call someone on the phone or do like a text chat with them or something and they try to convince you to stay, which is crappy. But the other alternative is that Wirecutter is 40 bucks annually. And if you already have a New York Times premium digital subscription, you get it for free. So, you know, I think they can go behind a paywall because they have a service that people are willing to pay for. So kudos to them. What's the upgrade pick? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, the, the $40 is the upgrade pick I get. I don't know. I, I would pay extra to be able to cancel more easily. <laughs> One of us needs to go first. Whoever needs to buy an appliance first, uh, sign up for it and see how hard it is to cancel. Yeah, and I think really the upgrade pick is having a Marco Arment in your life who has also bought the particular item in question, say like a flashlight or something, and then you can just say, hey, Marco, what should I buy? And then the bad news is you'll be spending an, an asinine amount of money, but the good news is you're going to get something really nice. So you, you just need a Marco in your life. And then tell me, speaking of the Wirecutter experience, the best blender is not a wasteland? For some people. So Best Blender is a Wasteland was titled last episode. It was about trying to Google, do a Google search for Best Blender and just finding all these terrible SEO type results and not trying what you want and saying, if you type Best Blender Wirecutter, then you'll get the Wirecutter's recent review of blenders and it will be more informative and useful than just typing Best Blender. So someone sent me a screenshot and they typed Best Blender into Google and the number one hit was the Wirecutter's Blender review. So I was like, ha, look at that. Wirecutter, you know, it's so popular. It's got so many, uh, such such good SEO and such good content that so many people link to it. They're the number one hit for Best Blender. So I was going to follow up with that information. But then I figured, you know what, as usual, confirm what listeners send in. I type Best Blender into Google. Um, I'll give Marco the screenshot of this perhaps for the show art. Uh, everything above the fold, meaning within the viewport of my reasonably sized window, is an ad. <laughs> when I do Best Blender. I've got a row of ads with pictures on top, then I've got Consumer Reports ad and recommendations and sublinks and a bunch of other pictures. So literally every single thing I can see in my browser window after having Best Blender into Google.com is an ad. (laughs) If I scroll, 
wire cutter is right underneath that. And then another box that tries to, where Google tries to answer the question and then good housekeeping and Forbes and homes and gardens and CNET and consumer reports again. And then a map with a bunch of stores on it and then NY mag. And anyway, so I'm going to, I'm going to call this a, you know, medium eh, best blender is not really a wasteland. Maybe Google is a little bit of a wasteland though, because nothing that's not an ad above the fold is pretty crappy. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would just not argue with Google being a wasteland at this point. Like, yeah. that, yeah. like Google web search is a disaster most of the time. Um, although to be fair, uh, as a most of the time DuckDuckGo user who jumps over to Google when I can't find what I'm looking for there, it seems like all web search is a disaster <laughs> these days. So Google might be like, you know, the, the least crappy of the options that are out there, but they're all, I, th- I think just the web is a wasteland right now. <laughs> that, that's the real, the real problem is, <laughs> yeah, the web is a wasteland. Oh man, that's tough. Yeah, DuckDuckGo has been doing what they need to, to survive, but I'm seeing more and more um, stuff that I don't want to see and fewer and fewer things that I do want to see, which is very frustrating. I do still love DuckDuckGo, but golly, there, there's more and more and more ads every every year, and it's it's frustrating. <laughs> Cryptographic hashes versus Apple's CSAM neural hash. We got a little bit of feedback about this, about how some of the things we said weren't 100% accurate. John, you want to correct the uh, record here? Everything we said was accurate. It was just uh, overly general, right? So there's different kinds of hashes, right? And we just described the general case of hashes, which is a thing that takes a bunch of different inputs and maps them to a much smaller, finite number of outputs, right? So the whole world of possible files of any size and you make a function that's going to map the each one of the contents of those files to one of a finite number of hashes. Obviously, there will be collisions because it's a one-to-many relationship, right? And that's what we were talking about in broad strokes, right? In a more detailed view, there are different kinds of hashes for different purposes. One particular kind of hash that a lot of people brought up as an objection, but that we didn't talk about specifically, is called a cryptographic hash. In certain cases, when you're trying to do encryption, you want a hash that has certain properties because there are lots of different ways that you can map from an infinite number of inputs to a finite number of outputs. Like the hashing algorithm decides how you do that mapping. There's lots of different choices you can make. So we'll link to the Wikipedia page for cryptographic hash function, but I pulled out two points that are salient to what makes them a cryptographic hash. Uh, One uh, is that it's infeasible to generate a message that yields a given hash value. In other words, to reverse the process, right? So if we tell you the hash value is this number and I say, you go get me something that hashes this value, it's really hard to do, right? And two, it's infeasible to find two different messages with the same hash value, right? So if I find one message hashes to this, find me another message that hashes the same thing. And we know there are collisions because it's a hash function, but it's hard to find them. It's infeasible to find, right? That's what we want out of a a cryptographic hash function, right? Now compare this to Apple CSAM neural hash. Like the purpose of this hashing algorithm is to take two different images and get the same hash. Like the purpose is to collide. What I mean by that is, remember, they're not just doing a one-to-one comparison against their database of pictures. They want to detect this picture even if it's been modified in some minor way. Scaled, rotated, blurred, new text added to it, turn black and white, right? So for this thing to operate correctly, multiple images that are different from each other 
are supposed to map to the same hash. That's how they tell if this is quote unquote the same picture. That's what makes this a neural hash. Again, it doesn't make it not a hash function. It is mapping from multiple values to a finite number of values. But the way this hash function works is we want it to tell us that these three images, even though they are technically different byte for byte, they are the same picture just modified slightly and we want them to hash to the same thing. So, and that's what makes this very difficult to do and tricky and it's not the cryptographic hash functions are easier but like the demands of this neural hash are for it to be to have some kind of intelligent matching and collisions are what we want when it functions correctly what we don't want are collisions that aren't the same picture like that is a different picture entirely i don't want that to hash to the same thing as these three pictures but these three pictures are all variants of the same picture and so they should hash with apple's neural hash to the same value and then keeping in the same theme, Jonathan Schrott wrote, if governments can mandate Apple make code changes to CSAM detection, then they can mandate making code changes to photo object rec recognition, uh, machine learning, and always on OCR. So I, in other words, I, I think what Jonathan's point here is that, you know, they could say, oh, if you detect, um, you know, certain phrases in what's being shown in the camera, or if you def if you detect certain th things that, that, that they don't want you to see, um, then, then you could potentially be instructed to alert the authorities about it. So Jonathan continues, slippery slope arguments seem to skip over those. Yeah, the, the uh, ML one is the most salient because people are like, I don't want my phone scanning all my pictures. Well, it's been doing that since Apple added the ML feature. Right? This is the reason you can search for dog in your photos and find pictures of dogs. It's scanning every single one of your pictures and categorizing them using a machine learning model. Right? The only difference, obviously, with the CSAM thing is that it also sends some data back to Apple about it, right? But but if, if people's hang-up is, I don't want my device, device scanning a bunch of my pictures or I don't want that capability to exist, where my, my, my device is passively scanning all my photos all the time and categorizing them. Or if they're afraid, like it's too open-ended, yeah, they say they're not going to add anything to that NCMEC database, but what if they get something else in there? They already have a completely open-ended, totally not audited or controlled ML service running over all your pictures that probably expands in every release to identify more and more things. Uh, the only difference is it just doesn't transfer anything back to Apple. So yeah, like I alluded to in the first episode we talked about this, Trusting Apple is a key component of of having an iPhone. If you don't trust Apple, don't get an iPhone because Apple makes the OS and the hardware and they can do whatever they want with all your stuff and they can inform you about it or not, but it's very difficult for the average user to be able to audit that information. Like you can't expect the average user to know everything that's going on inside their phone. In the end, what it comes down to is trust that what Apple is telling you is true. And if you don't have that trust, don't get an iPhone. But like, that's the problem with Anything you buy, you must trust the brand, the company, the thing that made this product for you. If you don't trust that, all bets are off. What was that uh, That paper on trusting trust or something like that? What is the name of it? Yep, it's a super old one. I think I read that many decades ago. What, what year did that come out? Uh, it was Thoughts on Trusting Trust. I think it was Dennis Ritchie, one of the C compiler guys. It was, it was basically like a technical paper saying, hey, if you can exploit the lowest levels of a system, like, for example, if you can mess with the compiler that's used to build the operating system or whatever, like, you can't trust anything. Like, it's basically, you know, the computers are a big stack of stuff, right, from high level to low level. And if you can insert yourself at a low level, everything above it is suspect, right? Because once you're, once you're down there, you can do all sorts of nefarious things. It's a really cool paper if you're a computer nerd and want to look at it. We will find the link for the show notes. Reflections on Trusting Trust by Ken Thompson. Does that sound right? Yep. What was the year? Ken Thompson, not Dennis Ritchie. Uh, 84. 1984. I did not read it in 1984, but I did read it in like 1993. Well, I was two. In 1984, <laughs> just to make you feel really and truly old. Uh, all right, moving right along. 
let's see. So in the continued effort for Apple to own goal themselves as often as they possibly can when it comes to PR, uh, Apple just banned a pay equity Slack channel. This was covered in The Verge. Uh, we're not going to go too deep into this, but I've been instructed by a dear colleague that I need to read the following. <laughs> so uh, from The Verge, Apple has barred employees from creating a Slack channel to discuss pay equity. Apple HR said that while the topic was, quote, aligned with Apple's commitment to pay equity, quote, it did not meet the company's Slack terms of use. Seriously, this is what we're hanging your hat on. Yeah, that's that's what I said last time, like, oh, you can probably come up with some reason to to not allow it. But so Apple is saying it's aligned with our commitment to pay equity. See, we we we're all on the same team here, but don't do it. <laughs> right. continuing continuing from the verge quote slack channels are provided to conduct apple business and must advocate the work deliverables or mission of apple departments and teams quote the employee relations representative told employees the company's rules for the in-office chat app say that quote slack channels for activities and hobbies not recognized as apple employee clubs or diversity network associations or dnas aren't permitted and shouldn't be created quote this is continuing from The Verge. But that rule has not been e evenly enforced. Currently, you Apple don't employees, say. How is that yeah, possible? Who'd have thunk it? Apple employees have popular Slack channels to discuss fun dogs, which has more than 5,000 members, gaming, with more than 3,000 <laughs> members, and dad jokes, which I want to be a part of, for, which has more than 2,000 members. On August 18th, the company approved a channel called Company Foosball. The cat and dog channels are not part of official clubs, and all of these channels were specifically created to talk about non-work activities. So, turns out that they also need to work on equity within Slack channels, too. What a mess. Yeah, I'm just I'm like, what, what a flimsy excuse of like, oh yeah, no, we're totally for pay equity, but here's some like weird letter of the law rule about, oh, you just can't do it in Slack, sorry, it's because of our Slack terms of use. And just like App Store Review, it's not like you can go, but what about the dad jokes channel? Don't look over there. <laughs> like it's just, it's just like app review it's like this is the new part of apple's dna arbitrarily uh you know enforced or not rules and by the way you're not allowed to ask us it's not about what what little jimmy is doing this is about you right now can we focus on you your slack channel unfortunately <laughs> doesn't meet the terms of use it has nothing to do with the fact that it's pay equity we're committed to pay equity but really don't make that channel so bad. Seriously, I'm telling you, Apple is just nothing but PR own goals for the last month or two. It's ridiculous. And if you don't believe me, listen to the last episode. All right, moving right along. We had some really interesting uh, feedback from an anonymous uh, feedbacker. Uh, this was with regard to how things are stored within like Apple Music and Spotify and whatnot. And what is an album? What is a track? What is a recording? And so on. Uh, this is a little bit long as well, but I do think it's absolutely worth it. So this anonymous person writes, for a while, I worked on music metadata at Spotify. The data model is generally like this. Recordings are an audio record of a specific performance. They may appear on many albums as tracks. So what are tracks? Tracks are like a slot on an album where recording goes. So, for example, track number three on the White Album is, quote, is the song Glass Onion. Every recording, track, and album is attributed to an artist. But there are a lot of corner cases. Under Pressure is a recording by both Queen and David Bowie. Should you attribute it to both of them separately with an entry under each artist? Should you make a new artist called Queen and David Bowie? Or what about tracks that feature an artist? Is Snoop Dogg the same artist when he did a reggae thing under the name Snoop Lion? What about various artists' albums? And then that brings us, of course, to albums. Albums are way more complicated than they seem initially. There are usually many slightly different versions of an album to be released in different markets, US, Canada, UK, etc., or with bonus tracks or with special art. The same album is often released digitally on CD and on vinyl. Attributes of the audio like live or radio edit or remix can also be supplied at the recording track or album level. So this is 
pretty bananas. And then this individual gave us a link to Music Brains, uh, which is musicbrainz.org, which has, according to them, a pretty good schema that re- represents most of this. So you can go and check that out if you want to dig deeper. So this tells me that Spotify, unlike Apple, did spend some time thinking about the data model for music and all the various choices they have to make and how the things are connected and so on and so forth. So I'm you know, glad to hear that. Although I have heard a lot of complaints about Spotify getting confused about artists that have the same name. Merlin complains about that a lot. Yep. Um, no, it's very true. Yeah. Not to mention they have like they have spam issues. Like it's 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 beyond like they're not just confused, like they're being actively spammed. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's part of anything <laughs> where you allow people to submit content, even if it's not like the whole world, but just people who record music, it's you know, it's a problem. But uh, I'm glad there's some thought put into this stuff on Spotify's end. Hopefully they do better than Apple in terms of tracking these things, but I still feel like, yes, the data model is very complicated, but there are more complicated data models and just like spend a week maybe whiteboarding it before you just go ahead and implement <laughs> your thing. But uh, Apple didn't do that, you know, a couple of decades ago and now we're stuck with what we have. My kid is nine and is super, uh, let's say, made of me <laughs> in certain ways. <laughs> um, you know, he, he, they're he, Half his DNA came from me. So, you know, unsurprisingly, he's super into uh, technology and uh, computing devices. And um, he's very interested in learning how to write code. I recognize Nine is a little young, uh, but not too young. He, to give you some idea of where he is, um, he has already seemingly very much mastered the language of Minecraft command blocks <laughs> and, and a lot of the, um, the various things you can do with that. Um, and so he, he's interested in learning how to code enough that he can start actually making his own games. So I was wondering if, if the audience had any feedback, and, and, I, and John possibly as well, because I know, I know you went through some of this, um, at least if not all of it. But I'm curious, like, if, what, what's a good tool set and, and language and, and you know, platform or whatever out there for kids to learn how to code? Um, you know, some, some things to consider. So number one, I don't care what platform it's on. If he can do it on his iPad, that's better. Um, but if if it has to be on you know a Mac or PC laptop, that's fine too. We can we can make that work. Uh, I I already have on his list of things to try that we're gonna we're gonna give a shot. Swift Playgrounds and Hopscotch. And I think I'm also gonna have he he plays Roblox on his iPad. I don't know if you can create Roblox worlds on the iPad. I don't know literally anything about it. Yes, I've seen that video about how people get ripped off, and I'll, I will show it to him when he's ready. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, so maybe maybe the answer is Roblox on a PC where he can like do the full-blown creative experience. I, I assume that's what that is. But he, he wants to be able to make games, and, and so I have concerns. Of, like I don't want to like just dump him right into Swift as a game platform because that's, I mean... I wouldn't even do that. I think, um, you know, because because he, he wants to he, he wants to like you know make game worlds where like you know okay you got to go to this go to this place and get this thing go to this place go to this thing and you know that you know these like you know multi level game logic things that that you know I feel like if I if I start him in like a, a, a lower level language I'm afraid that he might like kind of get intimidated by by how much work that will be and how hard it is to get from zero to that uh, and and possibly give up too early or get frustrated um, so. I'm okay separating the concerns of like making games and learning programming. Like that might be two different activities. Um, like if he wants to make something in Roblox as a game and then in Swift Playgrounds or something like that, learn, you know, the more low level coding stuff, that's fine too. I think that this might be two different things. It might be one thing. 
he would get a lot of value in learning Swift because he knows I use Swift. Um, and so that's like, like there's value there. Um, maybe he can teach me some stuff about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so anyway, so I'm curious, like, you know, what people um, have done for that recently, like what's out there. Uh, if it's going to feel too much like a toy language, I think it would turn him off. Um, and so I, like, I don't know, like I, I looked at hopscotch, I downloaded it. It might be too like young for him. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm going to find out and I'll report back, you know, as, as this, this, uh, series goes on. <laughs> but, um, anyway, so if anybody has any like really good stories about like what language or environment you were able to start a kid on who, who wants something that's not just a toy, he, he like, he wants to make real stuff, uh, obviously, but within the realm of what a nine-year-old can make. Um, and so, uh, let me know if you have any good experiences. Cause you know, I learned programming, on you know QBasic and and I thought briefly I'm like what if I just get like give him basic somehow like whatever environment that would be if I can get an emulator or if somebody makes like a modern interpreter for it or whatever like what if you get DOSBox and run QBasic yeah. in that well if Apple hasn't kicked <laughs> off the, the app store yet <laughs> no, I'm talking about on your Mac I'm oh yeah 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 so that, I mean maybe that's maybe that's a fun answer I even thought like what if maybe I should like get him an Apple II and just like <laughs> <laughs> boot it up and just like, you know, just have him type in the command line. Like I, you know, 10 print, print high 20, go to 10. Like, you know, <laughs> like, you know, cause you know, the more basic it is and not, you know, lowercase B basic, the more basic it is. I, I think the more accessible it is and, and the more kids can, can get into it, even if they can't necessarily make, you know, the next Minecraft, which, you know, no individual could. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd love to hear anybody's suggestions. Um, and this is not going to be a one week project. This is going to be like, you know, probably a multi month or multi year project um, as we try different things. And, and you know, I, we kind of have a feedback loop from him and see what he likes and what he doesn't like and, and what he gets into and what he doesn't. So anyway, I appreciate any any stories or input you can provide on like what should kids learn today? What, you know, what what makes a, a good balance between letting them do the kind of stuff they want to do, but not being too frustrating up front. The deal you're making, though, is that whatever you come up with, whatever you you like, I want you to come back to the show, please, and let us all know, because I'm probably, uh, hopefully, not too far away from wanting to answer the same question. And granted, it'll be a little different then, but I would love to hear what you guys end up really, really liking, or not liking, for that matter. Yeah, and once again, I have seen the Roblox video about how they rip everybody off. I don't need to be sent that. Thank you. <laughs> um, so here's a little bit of uh, stories from my experience uh, trying to get my kids into programming. Um, and I think I, what you said about QBasic, like that probably uh, led me down the wrong path because so I, every kid is different, blah, blah, blah. There's our disclaimer, right? But my impression of, from my kids and kids in general is a big part of the motivation is to do the thing, whatever the thing is, right? Just make a game, let's say. Um, we all know on this show that sort of the foundational programming knowledge is very important and, and transferable to lots of different uses and so on and so forth. But I think it's pretty rare the kid, especially young kid, that wants to learn how to program. It's only a means to an end. And if I think about how I learned to program and the reason why that that wasn't in the forefront of my mind is my you know, the thing I wanted to do, like make the computer do the thing, computers couldn't do anything when I was learning. They could print, like a VIC-20 can print text and colored blocks the size of characters on the screen, right? That's all it could do. And so when I wrote a program that, you know, 10 print hello, 20 go to 10, I was making the computer do the things that it does. 
Like it wasn't like, oh, that's just, I'm just learning to program or learning conditionals or loops. That's all I could do, right? Colored blocks, characters, print output, accept input from the keyboard, show it on your TV, right? That's it. And so it seems like, oh, you know, I, when I was a kid, I learned the foundations of programming and I bet other kids would like to do it too. But I think the only reason I was satisfied that and probably the only reason Marco was satisfied with QBasic is they could make computers do the thing that you thought was the thing. QBasic could make Windows, right? <laughs> like Windows and Windows, right? If I, I, am I getting QBasic? What? No, that, you're talking about Visual Basic, which I went to right afterwards. QBasic was like the DOS one, just a big blue screen of text, and and it had like you know built-in documentation, so I could just hop over and look up every function and make you know games like you know really basic you know text in and out games like you were just talking about, um, or you know you could you could do graphics. I eventually got to that um, in, in my later years of of playing with it, but it was initially just all text-based stuff, and then occasionally like you know drawing like ASCII graphics basically like i made like a little like bomberman clone um using ascii as the graphics it was it was a mess uh, but it was a lot of fun so but it was it was like at least it was closer to like what the computer could do right so when i tried to pitch my kids and things i started with things like hopscotch and a bunch of other stuff of were like tried to gamify learning to program right so they were you know there's also like kind of like swift playgrounds is today i forget the names of the things but like swift playgrounds is like a little character that moves around is trying to make it fun for you to just be in a text window by pre-doing a bunch of stuff and and letting you feel like hey i'm making a cool looking character move around but you didn't make the character it's just already there right with my kids i had no success getting them to want to learn to program at any age i didn't really push it that hard but i always put it in front of them see if they ran to it see if it would grab them and they never got hooked and we all all three of us know like what it means to get hooked on programming like it just it's one of those things that just happens right it's like you can see when programming gets its claws into somebody uh, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's not subtle. Uh, you'll <laughs> find yourself just sucked in and just constantly working on this program. And just like, we all experienced it. Like how, this is how we became who we are. Right. But when that doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Right. And I don't know what it takes to make it up. So I tried a lot of those things of like, let's gamify learning to program. Didn't work at all. I think what will work with a lot of kids and the reason Roblox and everything are exciting is fastest way to do the thing and unfortunately for kids today do the thing is make like a 3d game 3d network connected game <laughs> right and that's so far above you know print and input a dollar sign like it's so it's like you how are you going to go from zero to that so you got to use these things like these you know these game game creation engines where they basically do almost all of it for you they take care of the networking the multiplayer the roster the 3d graphics and you know, and you can start off with a bunch of canned stuff and make something that is recognizable to modern kids as a game. And that can get them hooked on programming because they start using like the pre-made models and the pre-made everything, but now they want to add some kind of behavior. When you hit this block, so I, want it, I want it to explode. And so now they're into like, okay, well, is there somewhere I can do that in the UI? Or do I have to type some kind of scripting thing? And they start to learn about conditionals and variables and then they're off to the races because they want to make the thing. And making the thing is tricky. I'm going to suggest something in a second that I think might not be that popular, but not for the reasons we would expect. So the, the Playdate is coming out soon, and they have a web-based dev thing where you can have you can have no programming, programming skill and make a game that will run on Playdate. And also it has a scripting language built in and stuff like that. I'll we'll link to an article in the show notes where Nevin Morgan, again, uh, talks about uh, how this IDE works, right? That's only useful if your son wants to make a game that runs on the play date but does he want to make a game that runs on a play date how many of his friends even know what a play date is unless they have nerdy parents right he might want to make a game 
that he can show to his friends and they can play on their PCs at home. And so this Playdate pulp thing is of no use and no interest to Adam because he can make it for himself and play it on his dad's Playdate or his mom's Playdate or whatever that's in the house, but it can't travel any farther. Do the thing means something different to a lot of kids. For some kids, it means it has to be a Minecraft mod because all my friends are in Minecraft and they want to see the thing that I made. To some kids, it wants to be a PC game or whatever it is. So I feel like that really is going to determine how you approach this. Um, and, and it could be Adam is super into programming as a programming thing, right? So who knows? You'll Again, every kid is different. You'll find out. But I think that is the tricky part about this, that even though we as programmers value programming in the abstract, I think it's probably rare, the kids that <laughs> value it in that way. And then, so the story for my kids, my son, after I, I, I pitched him on, I tried to show him how to program Perl, of course. Like, hey, look, you can just get text. <laughs> you, you monster. Text input. I was trying to basically do the equivalent of like basic, like, hey, you know, you can print things and you can accept input. Are you trying to scare them away from programming? Really? No, it's like, you know, like if, you try, if you're trying to look for like the equivalent of like basic where you, you know, you can print strings, accept input, do conditionals, run subroutines, right? Just like you can make a text adventure in it, right? So I tried to show them those basics. Not interested. Hopscotch, all that stuff, not interested. Scratch from MIT, not interested. And at various times, I would throw him in there. He played Minecraft like crazy, was not into making mods at all, did had no interest. He just wanted me to bang my head against trying to install the terrible mods that other people made, see past episodes of the show. <laughs> but eventually, in high school, he decided he was going to take a programming course. And in that programming course, he learned Swift and Java, and he took the, uh, the computer science AP test. Uh, and then he took a course on iOS development, uh, and now he's got an iOS app. And yesterday he was asking me, how do I get an app on the App Store? I think, and by the way, this is my question to the audience. I, I said I didn't know, and I said to, to try to look it up. And what he determined is I think minors can have an app on the App Store, even if it's free. He just wants his app to be free. He just wants to be on the App Store. But if anyone knows, how is it that minors can get free apps on the App Store without having their parent do it or something? Please let me know. So that's the state we're at there. But anyway, he did that all on his own. Like, what is it that clicked in his mind? And he, by the way, he's totally hooked now. It's like the programming thing got him. Not because of anything I did, not because of any of my attempts to encourage or support it or anything like that. In fact, probably despite all my efforts, <laughs> on his own, he decided at age, you know, 15 or 16, that he's going to look into programming and fast forward a few years and he's spending hundreds of hours sitting in front of his laptop in Xcode every, you know, three days coming out of his cave to ask me some question that I can't answer about why something's broken in Xcode. <laughs> and you, he's using Swift UI and Swift and, you know, doing all the things. And as, as far as I'm concerned, he doesn't know the fundamentals of programming and didn't have a bottom-up education. He just wanted to do the thing. So he made an app for his school to, like, read his school's newspaper. Uh, it's basically an RSS reader combined with a podcast player. I've sent Marco a few screenshots where it looks a lot like Overcast because he was quote-unquote inspired by Overcast, which is the only <laughs> podcast player he's ever seen, I think. Um, but anyway, that happened like all on its own. So uh, my advice to Marco is like, let Adam lead you where he wants to go. And if he if it turns out that he's not into it, it doesn't mean that he's never going to be into it. It could just be that he's, you know, He's not interested in the way that you want him to be interested in, which is the story of kids all the time. Like, yeah, they they can be led by what their parents do, but at a certain point, what their parents want them to do starts to become less attractive. He's nine, so that's probably not happening yet, but rest assured it will happen. So, <laughs> yeah, my, my only suggestion is to look at Pulp. If he's into it and he's into the play date, it's great. It's web-based, runs on every platform. You can program in it by writing code, but you can also make a complete game without writing a line of code just by clicking on stuff. It's and also so it's not nice. out yet. Yeah, I know. But like, he's, he's nine. <laughs> I mean, minor detail. <laughs> he's nine, and it's going to be out soon. 
Yeah, no, I, I actually I thought about the play as as a possible thing because it is a simplified environment. Like it has this monochrome small screen. It has some of these really easy to use tools. Allegedly, that I haven't, I haven't actually looked at them yet, but like this is one of the goals that they have of developing the playdate is like in addition to the available lower level languages is also this like easier thing that, that you can do um, and and so the, uh, that's certainly something that i'll be happy to explore with him you know once we get ours um but i i'm not sure like he he might fall in love with the thing uh but he might not yeah as you were saying like you, you kind of don't know and so i, I was going to kind of wait and see on that but you know i i think he has he, he's very motivated to write code as a thing He's also very motivated to like create custom game worlds and stuff that that might not be this like tied together like he, he that, that that might be two different interests that happen to overlap um but that you know maybe he'll get into the coding side for its own sake who knows um so we'll see <laughs> he wants to write a spreadsheet <laughs> I mean probably not that um but I mean look I've been programming for a, a very long time I've never written a spreadsheet so you know like there's there's a lot more to this world than that uh, so yeah, so we'll see. I I, I uh, I'm glad to hear that it worked out for your son. Well, I mean, it worked out. I mean, like he came to it on his own. The other thing I would suggest, by the way, is uh, web programming. I know you're not super into that, but like you can do a lot of. I mean, I I don't have any again concrete suggestions. I'm sure listeners will send in good stuff, but there's a lot of stuff you can do with JavaScript and web pages. And the advantages that has is that all his friends have access to web the web browser. Like it is a platform that everybody can access, and you can write some pretty cool quote-unquote web-based games you know with using with processing.js or all sorts of other stuff that my son was also into at various times web tech is easy um in terms of you don't need a complicated ide the language is pretty friendly there's lots of examples you know you can create even just learning html and css and then learning css animation and then making some stupid fart thing with css animation like that's that's great that's fine like that maybe you know it really depends on where his values are. are his values I want to make a cool thing for me or his values I want to make a cool thing to show off to my friends or his values like literally I want to learn about programming because I'm intellectually curious about it or is it a spectrum and like you said are they separate things or are they actually combined yeah I guess we'll find out I'll report back yeah please do I, I'm really genuinely interested to hear uh, John what is the latest because how old is your son he's a, a rising junior senior senior okay so he's got his license to drive that's right. That's right. Okay, and I remember. And I remember on Rectifs, you're starting to talk college. So, sitting here now, is he going for like CS, CPE, or something equivalent? Yep. Is he going to be computer science major in college? Nice. Not CPE or, or computer engineering. Like I, okay. they, I, right. I told them, like if you're in computer science, it's probably going to be on like liberal arts college, and you have to take more English courses, and that's turning him off. So he'd rather be in engineering, but he does like computer science. So there are some cool schools with CE, and actually, I think Cornell lets you take computer science in the engineering school. So does Virginia Tech. Just saying. It's not going to Virginia, but yeah. Um, computer what science, that? computer What the hell, man? What is that absolute disgust in your voice? No, he's, he's, he's trying to stay <laughs> close to home. All right, all right. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. So in the last, uh, I don't know, it was like a week ago or something like that. Uh, it was been mere a... hours after we released the last episode of oh, the that's show. Right, that's right. That's right. Thank you. Uh, there was brilliant news uh, that Apple has made all of our lives so much better. According to the Washington Post, Apple loosens rules for developers in a major concession amid antitrust pressure. The Wall Street <laughs> Journal says that Apple's set to let app developers alert users to alternate payment methods. Financial uh. Times says Apple makes App Store concession on payments. The Verge says Apple finally agrees to let app developers communicate with their customers. Finally, CNBC says in major policy change, Apple will allow developers to email customers about alternatives to App Store billing. Oh, hell yeah, gentlemen. We are going to be rich. 
And those headlines, by the way, are from Stratechery. Um, uh, ben Thompson collected them all. And it, it is a great example of how the initial flurry of stories about this thing were reported. And I saw some of these headlines flying across on Twitter. I'm like, wow, what is this big news? Turns out, maybe not. So I, I don't think we really need to go that deep into this famous last words. But basically, there aren't any concessions at all. And it seems like the only people that really understood what was happening here were Bloomberg, where their headline is Apple settles with app developers without making major concessions. <laughs> accurate headline. Almost accurate yep. headline. Almost accurate. Settles with app developers. Who are these app developers? And who are- <laughs> Bingo. That's like, I look, I, and I, we did, a, we did a, a lot about this on Under the Radar this week that came out today. So um, I, w- I will also refer people to that. I, I think it's a very good episode if you're a developer or not. Um, and I, I strongly, even if you don't listen to Under the Radar normally, I strongly recommend this week's episode. Uh, I think it was a really good one. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm, I'm going to cover some of the same ground here. But yeah, there, there is no dealing with, quote, app developers. App developers are not a unified group. Who, no one speaks for me. No one speaks for all the other developers. Like, I'm not part of some organization. I'm not part of a union. I'm not part of some kind of trade group. Like, I don't know any developers who are. We all want different things. Like, we have some common themes about what we, what we want. And, and, you know, we have some communities that, that are somewhat cohesive. But it's a pretty big group of people with lots of different communities, lots of different cultures, lots of different priorities, lots of different needs. Uh, and there is no, you know, app developers suing Apple. There is no Apple settling with app developers because that group doesn't exist. Like, and so anyway, minor nitpick there. No one speaks for me. Okay. Like I'm not part of any group that's like, Oh, I, I didn't agree to this. I didn't even, honestly, frankly, I didn't even know about this lawsuit until this press release. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a class action lawsuit, and the class is developers on the App Store, and you know the, the nature of class action lawsuits is that they are a big payday for the lawyers involved, and you may or may not be in the class, and maybe you'll find out about it later, right? So here's what this the all right. So the the overall story is that it seemed like that this class action lawsuit was going to fail, that Apple was going to win because it was a flimsy case. I don't even remember what the details were. It was just something like oh, Apple being unfair, or whatever. But it, it seemed to observers that that Apple was probably going to win it. So Apple settled it, and they settled it on terms that, as the Bloomberg headline said, didn't give any major concessions. Because why give concessions when you're going to win the case anyway? You're settling it to save everybody time and money. Just take the settlement, be lucky, be happy with what you got. And what did the class of App Store developers get? Well, Apple put together a $100 million fund to help app developers out. And I think they're going to like, if you're in the class, you can apply to essentially get like 3% of what you would have gotten if Apple's uh, cut was 15% instead of 30. Like so Apple recently reduced the cut for the small business program. You know, if you make less than $1 million in revenue per whatever, um, and you apply to this program and Apple approves you, then instead of taking 30% of all your sales, they'll take 15%. Well, if you were in the class of developer and you choose to receive some of this uh, money, this one hundred million dollar pool would be divided up amongst all the people who asked, uh, who, all the people who were in the class who paid thirty percent during the time that it was supposedly unfair. Um, the lawyers also get paid out of this one hundred million dollar fund, and they want thirty million of it. So kiss that money goodbye. Which gloriously is 30%, which I love yep. so much. <laughs> lawyers take 30%. So a handful of lawyers get $30 million. You may possibly get up to 3% back on what Apple took from you in some period of time. Oh, and by the way, if you take the settlement, if you take this money from Apple, this piddling amount of a couple hundred bucks that you're probably going to get, uh, you also promise to never, ever 
uh, sue Apple for anything ever again. Like this whole big legal agreement. It's like by, by taking this money, you agree that Apple uh, must be held harmless and didn't do anything wrong. And you're not allowed to and you agree that the App Store rules are fair and so on and so forth. There's all these <laughs> all these sort of stipulations. Right. So that's one thing. That's part of the second settlement. Second thing is Apple has clarified, and ben, again, Ben Thompson and Mr. Tecker, you have to pay for this article, but you should because he goes into way more detail than we're going to hear. Um, also clarified an existing rule that says uh, they Apple had flip-flopped back and forth on it, but previously they had said, app developers, you cannot communicate with your customers uh, by collecting information in the app. So in other words, you couldn't make an app that says, hey, customer, enter your email address here. And then to sign up for my whatever, and then you would get their email address and then you would use that email address to say, hey, customer, you gave me your email address. And I just wanted you to know that if you go to my website, you can sign up for an account or subscription or blah, blah, blah. And if you do it through the web, you don't have to pay Apple 30 percent. There used to be a rule where Apple said you couldn't do that. And now Apple is clarifying that developers can use communication such as email to share information about payment methods outside of their iOS app. But wait, wait, outside their iOS app? Yeah, outside your iOS app. Well, that's not a concession. No, it's not really. They're basically <laughs> saying, if you want to email people and you already have their email address that you didn't get from the app, that's fine. Thanks, Apple. Am I allowed to talk to the person sitting next to me or do I need your permission to do that too? It's like, <laughs> Apple's like, uh, you know, we don't want you ever saying anything about other payment methods to your customers, even if you do it outside of the App Store, but now you're allowed to, it's fine. You can talk, you can talk to your friends. We won't, we won't. I don't know. I mean, how would Apple even stop this? It's totally unenforceable. Apple's just saying, now, don't tell anybody about other payment methods outside of your app. <sighs> anyway, so that's clarified. Um, Apple also agreed to keep the small business program for at least three more years, which is nice, but it's like, wait a second, there's an end to this program? Yeah, yeah right. I, I program. was going to say, I do not recall there ever being any mention of this being a temporary thing. They didn't say one way or the other, but they could say, hey, let's throw them a bone. It's like, oh, if you're worried about this program going away, it'll be here for at least three more years. Uh, and also, Apple also agreed not to make the App Store search even worse by doing things like unfairly <laughs> unfairly weighting its own apps, which is a thing that Apple totally did, right? In the Epic trial that came out, that Apple had been unfairly weighting some of its apps for a while <laughs> and then reversed that. So the Apple also agreed, yeah, we won't do that anymore either. Aren't we great? So yeah, Apple gave basically nothing. I mean, $100 million is, is nothing. Well, by the way, that, that search thing is nothing because what, what the what the settlement allows them to do is use like objective metrics like, you know, user downloads and reviews. Well, yeah, guess what apps have the most usage on the App Store? Apple's apps. So they can just say, oh, well, we're going to rank them by usage. There, bing, Apple's apps come out on top. It's not artificially rating. That's that's a meritocracy. <laughs> yeah, anyway. yeah, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the bottom line is Apple can do whatever it wants with its search. Like the only way we would ever find out that they did anything like like we have no visibility into, into their algorithm, right? It's the reason we didn't know that they had been unfairly waiting their app until we saw uh, their, uh, we saw the, uh, you know, the discovery in the Epic trial. So, I mean, in all fairness, their algorithm is pretty easy to see because it's so terrible. I think, I think it just, it's like a, a MySQL like query. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So basically Apple didn't have to give anything here and they didn't give anything. And in some ways this like people saying, well, you know, what do you expect? Apple's going to win the case. They're not going to give any concessions, but it's actually a tricky situation for Apple because if you know you're going to win, like, I bet somebody thought if we do this $100 million thing, like, that'll make us look good. But it doesn't. It doesn't make them, it only makes them look worse than doing nothing. Like, if they had given no money, it would have just been like, well, Apple won that case and didn't give anything. It's almost like a slap in the face, the $100 million, when you know that the lawyers take $30 million of it, and then you're going to get pocket change out of it, and in exchange, you agree that Apple never did anything wrong on the App Store. <sighs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple angles to this. Obviously, some of this is probably over our heads in terms of like the legal ramifications and everything, and and you know some of the strategy behind some of it. But um, uh, one one theory I did hear a few times that makes a lot of sense is even though Apple was probably not going to lose this case if it went to trial, Apple I think has learned from the Epic trial that they really don't want to go to trial. It's it's bad for them in a number of ways to go to trial because then you start getting discovery and you start getting these like controversial emails coming out and and Apple's executives making asses of themselves on the stand and so you just I think Apple learned hopefully like yeah, we'd actually don't really want to go to trial if we can help it. If like if there's a way to settle easy lawsuits like this so they don't even get that far, it's better for us to settle them. So that's probably what happened here as, as part of this. Um, and you know, I, I not, and for the you know accepting the settlement, a lot of people keep asking me if I'm going to, if I'm going to accept it. I don't know yet. I have to look at like what it means to accept it really in more detail. Um, but if it's along the lines of like you agree not to sue Apple over these particular claims in this particular time span, like if I can't sue Apple for this same thing like like double jeopardy kind of thing we're like okay i can't say you took too much money from me between you know 2015 and 2020 or whatever oh well like i wasn't gonna do that anyway like i'm not gonna sue apple yeah, like, like that's <laughs> none of us are gonna sue apple like they have billions of dollars like no no individual on this podcast is ever going to sue apple probably uh, unless it's like a wrongful death suit for a phone that explodes or something like that so or a car like, yeah or a car oh, God. um <laughs> so i don't like it, it's just like it's mostly the optics it's not mechanically like oh you give up all these rights because again we're never going to sue apple but it just seems like a slap in the face for what i assume will be a piddling amount of money um and i'm kind of disappointed just i mean it's just dumb luck for me but like all the money i've ever made in the app store came during the 30 percent times more or less and then the 15 percent, like the the small business program happened after my apps had like sold their initial burst of stuff or whatever so i would love to have only had apple take 15 percent of that first burst of money but uh, you know, bad luck, bad timing. And if I can only get 3% of that difference back, for me, it's like chump change. It's like 200 bucks or something. So who cares, right? So I probably won't do it. Uh, but part of, I think part of this, like most class, class action lawsuits in theory depends on how many people uh, ask for the money. So if more people ask for the money, you get a smaller cut or something like that. Anyway, cl- Wait, you see, there's a press release that just came out right now that's something else now. What the hell is this? Wait, what? <laughs> we don't have, we can't do this, Apple. Stop. Stop with the uh I mean at least it's now. <laughs> okay. Japan Fair Trade Commission closes apps for investigation. Apple will let developers of reader apps, that has a special meaning we'll get to, around the world link to an external website to set up or manage an account beginning early next year. What? Oh my god, this is big. Whoa. While in-app purchases through the App Store, commerce system remain the safest and blah, 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 Apple will also help developers of reader apps protect users when they link them to an external website to make purchases. Is this only in Japan? No, it says worldwide. While the agreement was made with the JFTC, Apple will apply this change globally to all reader apps on the store. Oh, it's reader it's reader apps only. We yeah. So what that 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 has a special meaning. Um, so while I think about how this actually might be really big, but um, all right, <laughs> if we're reading it, if, obviously you got to like you know get around Apple's PR spin here. But this might this might actually be a really big deal. But what they're talking about reader apps means things like Netflix. Amazon ebook, uh, you know, Kindle app, um, things like that. It's like it's a special category of apps where they it's the same category that they would allow you to like have externally purchased stuff in these apps and not use an app purchase only if you didn't mention how to purchase it. That kind of, it was that whole category of apps. So it's 
they've used this term reader apps throughout the App Store rule evolution, and it's grown like in scope over time. So if this is what we think it might be, um, what this would basically be is like you know kind of everything but games. Basically, is is what this would most likely mean in practice. You know, the big companies that are giving them the most trouble: Spotify, you know, Amazon, Netflix, HBO, all that kind of stuff. They would all be able to link out to make external purchases. That well, would be a really big deal. Sort of. <laughs> they said so, to set up to set up or manage an account. So no, no, no. But then it even says so. But it, see, this is the <laughs> this is. <laughs> Uh, the the third paragraph here about safe guidelines, this is where it can get tricky. So <laughs> they're saying, you know, before the change goes into effect next year, Apple will update its guidelines and review process to make sure users of reader apps continue to have a safe experience on the App Store. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Apple will also help developers of reader apps protect users when they link them to an external website to make purchases. So that, to me, kind of sounds like Apple's going to be heavily reviewing and probably have a lot of rules around like if you link out for an external purchase what you can do there how you can do it what you might have to offer the users like safety wise or control wise which if this is as big as i think it kind of might seem like it is um that might be a pretty good compromise um but man this is <laughs> i'm gonna have to like analyze every word of this to really know for sure what's going on here yeah we'll see well to that end to that end in the end of the second paragraph Apple agreed with the JFTC to let developers of these apps share a single link to their website to help users set up and manage their account. So do they get like a single, like literally one link? I mean, you get net Netflix.com slash sign up or whatever. Well, it could be through like the associated domain system. Like they could actually, so, you know, so at, right now apps have these, the concept of the associated domain. This is how universal links work where you open up certain links and they open up the app instead of the, instead of the website. Um, and you can you can you have a way for an Apple system to kind of you know verify between an app and a website or a web domain like I own this domain this domain is related to this app um, and so they could possibly use that system and have like a field somewhere that says like this is my purchase page or whatever this is my this is my login or sign up page um, and then maybe they can have some way for boy I don't I mean this is all like you know shot in the dark here maybe they could have some way to like you know have like a managed payments kind of kind of centralized control flow or something. I don't know. It this <laughs> if this is what it sounds like it is, this is a going to be a really big deal and b going to depend a lot on the implementation details. Like and there's a lot of details here that are kind of saying, "All right, coming early next year, you know, hand wavy and maybe it's going to take a, maybe it's going to take until that because this is kind of a big deal. Like and it might require some software updates infrastructure building in addition to working out the rules and trying to settle down the regulators around the world. You know, given how well the App Store review folks are at, at understanding and figuring out what apps do, like very often they will misunderstand like screens in the app or how to get between them or what is actually available. The idea of them clicking through to your website and making sure that your website is satisfactory according to some set of rules, like just I feel like their main skill set is finding where you hid the link to Netflix.com. It is not <laughs> once you get to Netflix.com figuring out if the website complies with whatever rules they're going to make up or whatever. So anyway, we like this. This story is 
literally breaking news while we're recording the podcast. So we apologize if we got any of it wrong. Surely we'll talk about it more next week. But it transitions nicely into the next item. <laughs> I I love, by the way, I love the concept of like, we we just were saying how all the initial headlines about the other thing were totally wrong. Mm-hmm. So I really hope that we didn't just make our own like totally wrong summary. <laughs> yeah, of yeah, well, yeah. we have an excuse. We're, we're getting it thrown at us in real time on a podcast. We didn't write an article and post it to the web about it. We would have done a little bit more research there. So, so actually, so here's a question before we move on. Um, just you know ballpark if this is kind of what it sounds like and if it's actually you know that that you know the reader apps which by the way those are the rules so what reader apps is defined as um, apps that allow users that may allow users to access previously purchased content or content subscriptions specifically magazines newspapers books audio music and video Um, so that's that's how they define reader apps so what this would basically mean is like, you know, that kind of app, you know, magazine, newspaper, books, audio, music, and video would be allowed to have external purchase systems, but things like games would not. And this is this is not unprecedented that I believe the Google whatever store also has like, you know, the, the games have to do things a certain way, but other apps were able to do things a different way, although I, think, I believe that's now changed. But anyway, so if this is what it sounds like, that external purchases would be allowed to be used for these kinds of apps, but not games and other kinds and other stuff. Do you think that's a good compromise? I I think it kind of is. It really depends on the implementation. Obviously, from Apple's perspective, since we know like 85% of their profits or whatever come from games, you can do a lot of stuff in the non-game part without hurting yourself too, too much. But historically, Apple has been like, but why would we give up that 15%? Like, why why would we even screw with it? Like, I know it's not the majority. I know games are where all the big money is, but why are we giving up anything? And the answer is because world governments are getting up on your business and making you do it. Uh, or like are threatening to make you do it. The U.S. government is doing stuff. This is the Japan Trade Commission. And the other story we have is in Korea, where they're trying to say you have to, South Korea has passed a bill that's trying to make it so that app stores like Apple and Google have to allow alternate payment systems, right? This bill, it hasn't been signed into law by their president yet, but it is. it looks like it's going to be, right? Uh, and so again, uh, a, a country, you know, somewhere in the world, not in the U.S., is going to have a law that's going to apparently affect both Apple and Google and their app stores. And, you know, what I was going to talk about before the Japan thing came out is like, okay, well, if some country makes some law that you have to, you know, allow alternate payment methods or, you know, do whatever with the, the reader app things and linking out to websites, do you just do it in that country or you do it? do you do it everywhere? And, you know, I'm glad that it seems like Apple has chosen to do it everywhere, at least in the case of the Japan thing, because it's just such a pain to try to have different sets of rules and different approvals, uh, you know, of like what apps can and can't do based on country. It's much better to have one set of rules if you can possibly help it, especially for stuff like this, and to build a system around it. And the larger story is like, look, uh, governments are making Apple do what it previously wasn't doing on its own, because various governments think that the current competitive landscape for app stores is not great for the people who live in those countries so they're passing laws to make these people do things and that apparently is literally the only thing that will make apple do this stuff <laughs> either the threat of them like the small business program or whatever the threat of laws or actual laws um, i thought this story about korea was interesting because it's got response quotes from both google and apple like here's what spokespeople from those companies had to say about the idea that, that Korea says you have to allow alternate payment methods in the apps as a not in app purchase, but some other way to pay for things inside your app, right? So go, here's Google. Just as it costs developers money to build an app, it costs us money to build and maintain an operating system in an app store. Oh, boo-hoo. Google, yeah, it costs so, so much tough. money to run an app store. <laughs> Where is Google going to get all that money from? How can you take money away from Google? They're the ones trying to build, to, to, to maintain an operating system, build an app store. 
Cry poverty, Google. All right. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll reflect on how to comply with this law while maintaining a model that supports high-quality operating system and App Store, and we will share more in the coming weeks. So Google's going to reflect. They're going to reflect on how they're going to comply. They want to comply, but they also want to provide that high-quality experience after they just said, uh, feel bad for us because it costs so much money to make this operating system. <laughs> this is like um, soccer injuries. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to... What are we going to do now that people can use different payment methods? We needed that cut of that money because I don't know where else we would get money. It's really confusing, Google. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Apple. Here's what Apple says. Their response is very different in tone. The proposed law will put users who purchase digital goods from other sources at risk of fraud, undermine their privacy protections, make it difficult to manage their purchases, and features like ask to buy and parental controls will become less effective. We believe that user trust in the App Store purchases will decrease as a result of this proposal, leading to fewer opportunities for the over 482,000 registered developers in Korea who have earned more than 8.5 trillion Korean currency units whose name i don't know sorry <laughs> to date with apple so they're basically saying you are inviting fraud you will cause confusion and delay this is going to be a problem you're going to destroy the app store and you're going to take money out of the mouths of those hard-working korean app store developers that's what apple says very different in tone they just go right to the dire consequences most of which are you know mostly bs because the whole Ask to buy. Gruber had a good post about it. Ask, this doesn't preclude continuing to support ask to buy and parental controls. You know, as we just read in that Japan press release, Apple can totally make any external payment methods also feed into the ask to buy before approval. Like I can make an API for this. This is a thing that Apple's able to do. Like payment. You know, anyway, whether they do or not, it's entirely possible, right? Uh, the this story. Where is it from? Is this from the Verge? I think. Yeah. Uh, this story continues. Lobbyists for the two companies have reportedly argued to American officials that Korean legislation violates a, a trade agreement as it seeks to control the actions of U.S.-based companies. So they're lobbying the U.S. government to say, we don't have to we don't have to follow that Korean law, right? Because we have a trade agreement with them and this violates the trade. So they're trying full court press. We don't want to have to do what this Korean thing says because it basically says, you know, you in Korea anyway, you in your apps, you're allowed to collect payment through some way other than an app purchase. Now, obviously, already iOS apps can collect payment not through an app purchase for physical goods. And somehow the world doesn't end. Or services, you know, things like Ubers and yeah, stuff. And services. Yeah. yeah. Somehow, somehow that happens and we are not all just dead from fraud. Like, it's always <laughs> like, 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 we're going to allow people to enter credit card and Amazon.com. The world will end. How will people know what to trust? How do people buy things online? It's like, it's okay. We buy things online all the time. Like, it's fine, right? And also, on top of that, especially now, you know what you can buy things online with? Apple Pay. It's really easy. <laughs> Turns out. And it's also Apple's service. You don't even have to enter your address. You use Apple Pay. It, the Apple Pay is a product that succeeds based on its merits. It's a convenient way to pay because we already have Apple accounts. They already have our address. You do the little click. You do Touch ID, whatever. Boop, Apple Pay, right? And But Apple, every time they talk about this, it's like, I swear, if you let anyone enter a credit card or pay with anything other than an app purchase, the world will end. It's like the whole world outside of the app store is constantly buying stuff online with their credit cards. And they're doing it inside your apps for physical goods and services, which, you know, like, would you think they'd be even more fraught of like, oh, you know, I, I have to get a physical good and who knows if it's actually going to arrive and I might get defrauded. But then once you touch, you know, what Apple never says is, but now you're touching our money. 
because we get 30% of all the in-app purchases and please don't touch our money, right? So, and, they, and they frame it as a big fraud problem or whatever. So I don't know what's going to come of this Korean thing, especially in light of the Japan announcement of maybe they're going to take the Korea thing and say, well, if it turns out we have to do it in Korea, we'll do it everywhere as well. Well, we'll see. But but either way, I, I'm I'm reading the Japan press release a little more closely. <laughs> it seems less. <laughs> well, you get fooled just like the Verge. Well, there's an important detail in the Japan press release. So it's in the second paragraph. So you know they're talking about reader apps again. What that you know what that means. Um, to ensure a safe and seamless user experience, the App Store's guidelines require developers to sell digital services and subscriptions using Apple's in-app payment system. Here's the here's the important part. Because developers of reader apps do not offer in-app digital goods and services for purchase, Apple agreed, blah, 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 to let these shares link to the website. So, okay, so here's here's what this means. So, so it's for sign-up only. Yes. What this, what this means, if I'm reading it correctly now, is you are allowed to take purchases on your website, and you are going to be allowed, once this goes into effect, to link people to your website to create, to create your account. What you cannot still do is allow them to purchase stuff in the app using your system. So we're going to have the, a, a similar situation as we have now where you have you know, like that, that dumb situation with the Kindle app where like you can go here and look at your books that you've already purchased and we can't tell you how to purchase new ones, but you can look at these books. Look at them. How, how great are they? Oh, you want, you want more books? Well, you've got to figure that out on your own. Um, so it's going to probably still be that. But somewhere in the app, they'll be allowed to link you probably out to Safari. Like, not, 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 definitely not like an in-app web view. I wonder probably. if you'll be allowed to have a sentence next to that link explaining that if you follow <laughs> this link, it's a place where you can buy eBooks and then you'll see them in this app. I bet if, uh, that's the key thing, like the, the details, right? So if Apple lets you have a link, but all you can literally do is put a URL that people can click on, but you can't <laughs> explain anything, like you have to be able to put a sentence there that says, hey, go to amazon.com and buy Kindle books. And when you do that, you'll see them in this app. Right, that's the key information that we can't get out to people, and they, like you said, they just had to figure it out on their own. Yeah, my my best guess here is that so there's still there's definitely not, you know, using your saved Amazon credit card to buy an ebook in the app, except for maybe in Korea. Uh, yeah, actually, that's true. Yes, in Korea, that I believe by the by the by the wording of the laws we understand it, I believe that would be a, especially allowed in Korea. Uh, but uh, what this uh, what this is saying, I think, is we will literally just allow you to have a link in the app. That will link out to your website to then have people do stuff there if they want to, but you're definitely not buying stuff in the app using their system, which is still an important change. It's like that's still a really big deal, but it's not quite what people want. I, I didn't. I skipped the important part in the Korean law. So the the law is a thing that will re, will will prevent major platform owners like Google and Apple from restricting app developers to built-in payment systems. So it's like basically saying Apple and Google, you cannot restrict app developers to your payment systems, which implies that that means you'll be able to use other payment systems. Like it's no longer, you can't restrict, you can't say you have to use in-app purchase, which leaves the door open to other thing. And some people have been questioning, okay, well, what does Apple do? Like, do they have to build something or whatever? Like if Apple wanted, and this becomes a law and Apple felt like they had to comply with it, like all their lobbying efforts, the U.S. government failed and they had to comply with it. They don't have to do anything. They just have to approve apps that do this because you can send an app to the App Store app review right now that has a little web form that it takes a credit card. Like, this is not complicated technology. Apple doesn't need to do anything. Apple probably should and will do something like by making APIs and so on and so forth, right? They'll, they'll comply with the letter of the law, but say, hey, if you want to use alternate payment methods, use this new API that will trigger the parental controls and they ask to buy and 
you know, we'll be able to collect analytics on it and find out how bad we're doing against your payment. You know, like there are things Apple could do, but the thing about the Korean laws, Apple doesn't need to build or do anything technically. They just need to give thumbs up where previously they were giving thumbs down. Uh, because believe me, app developer, I mean, Epic, hell, Epic shipped it already with it behind a toggle, remember, <laughs> where they would uh, take money, you know, for instead without using an app purchase. App developers are more than capable of collecting money from people in iPhone apps without any help from Apple. So I'm interested to see how the Korean thing shakes down. Assuming it gets signed into law and assuming Apple has to comply with it, then they have to choose, are we just doing this in Korea? Are we doing it worldwide? And it seems potentially more damaging than the the Japan thing, now that we know more about it, the Japan thing seems like a, you know, minor concession on the linking out thing, subject to lots of details that we don't know the answers to in terms of how Draconian is Apple going to make it? Are they going to let you explain what the link is for? Why do you only get one link? How annoying are they going to be during app review about getting your app through? Because Apple can say whatever it's want, whatever it wants about the supposed rules on the app store, but experience has shown that even a 100% legit right down the middle within the rules thing can be very hard to get through app review because sometimes they just don't understand or disagree about the reality of the app you've submitted to them. Well, breaking news. And it, since we began, are there any new press releases from Apple? Besides <laughs> the Japan one, I think only that one. Okay, well, just, I don't know if we should wait a couple minutes to see if another one's going to come. I think this is the first time they've announced a significant app store rule change during our show. What the, it's a Wednesday. What do they <laughs> I don't understand? All right, whatever. So a week or two ago, um, in the show notes, in the section that we keep for potential after-show topics, the following appeared. Marco bought two new cameras. And then we were talking before the show, and we thought, well, maybe we should upgrade that to a uh, an actual topic. So that time has come. Marco, what the hell are you spending on money on, man? <laughs> uh, it's not what you think, and it's more than two now, actually. It was two. Oh, God. Um, did you buy, like, uh, home uh, security cameras? Yes, I did. Hey, you figured oh, good. it out. All right. Good. I, I, want, <laughs> I want all the knowledge you have about this, because I want to do this on, my, at, at, on whatever to my house, but I haven't done it yet. Okay. So here's how I was hoping to trip up John with buying two new cameras thinking i bought like you know a bunch of mirrorless stuff or whatever no I, I, my guess was these especially since i saw some stories about the new magnetic nest ones that has dissuaded me from buying those so i hope you have some stories that are more encouraging than what i heard about those so here here's here's the deal here so you know as i mentioned you know i, I kind of live in a in a party beach town and um as a result you know we have things like casual bike theft all the time uh we also have you know we've because it's a party town in the summertime, you definitely get people, you know, like coming onto your property and doing weird stuff, whether it's, you know, just like sneaking under your deck to drink if they're teenagers um, or or worse. Uh, it's just like, you know, it's certain things you kind of want to discourage. And a lot of people around here have cameras. And um, so I thought, you know what, let me see. I'll at least put a camera like where we park our bikes and in this area that that was under a part of our deck that that keeps getting like you know liquor bottles left there by strangers and and we've caught people um, enjoying each other there a few times and and so we're like okay so you know let, let me put up some cameras and maybe that'll you know make the people go somewhere else um, so uh, I've had a little bit of experience before uh, with Nest cams 
Uh, we've we use Nest Cams um, and for for a few years now um, to like watch our porch to see like it, were packages delivered, you know, and we could like you know make sure we bring them in or whatever else. Uh, we also would have Nest cameras um, like if we were like if we we're going to be away from home for a while, we would we put one like in the bedroom just in case like somebody broke in. And I, who knows, right? Which has never happened, but um, we, we that's kind of the context of how we're using them. Um, so. The Nest cameras, we don't have the current models. We have we have whatever the Nest cams were that that were available like four years ago. <laughs> so the the Nest cams we have are admittedly very out of date. Um, but at the time, they were something like two hundred bucks each, or they, I mean, they weren't they weren't cheap, like two or three hundred bucks each. Um, and we have a couple outdoor ones, a couple indoor ones. The ones I bought for this, I decided not to go with Nest uh, because it, first of all, Nest as a like software and services company has just been going so far down the tubes in recent years. Um, I, I believe I mentioned on the show a little while ago that I, I ripped out all the Nest thermostats in, in this house and replaced them all with the Echobee uh, HomeKit compatible ones because I was just so tired of dealing with Nest crap. Like Their, their stuff just is very unreliable. The, the, it's hard to set up. Their web service is down all the time. They, they're making this weird transition to thread radios that has a lot of bugs in this transition and makes it very hard to like manage their thermostats and set them up and get them on the network. And so I'm just like, I'm done with Nest. I'm so done with Nest. And then setting aside the fact that they are owned by Google, which I, you know, has, has always been a little bit creepy. Um, and, and like when I first bought their stuff, they weren't, but anyway, so Nest, I, I wasn't super happy with. I also know from having Nest cameras for the last four or five years, whatever it's been, I know that they are reliable in the sense that, you know, you will record video footage, uh, but I also know that their object detection and people detection is really bad. It's really unreliable. I get false alarms all the time. Like, I have the, the camera that I have set up all the time um, from that's a nest in, in another location, I get an alert every single day that there's movement detected in my room uh, because the sun moves. And the sun moves very slowly throughout every day. And you would think that that Nest would accommodate for this and, and maybe design their algorithms to account for the fact that the sun is real, uh, but they don't. Um, so I don't know if the new ones are better in this regard, but the old ones, they literally like alert me every day that the sun has moved at, at about the same time every day. <laughs> and, and this is they, I've, I've tried like a little bit different positions of the camera. It, it doesn't matter at all. Like that's it always happens. So anyway, not super thrilled with Nest. Um, Nest is also. Uh, somewhat expensive, you know, like for, for something that, you know, if, if you want, it, Nest is only cloud-based. Like it's it's recording and streaming stuff to the cloud. There is no local storage. There is no option for local storage. And you pay for their cloud service to, to retain your stuff for however you need, you need to be retained. Um, so those are the downsides of Nest. Uh, so for this, I decided, let me look at other stuff. If, I, if it ends up I need to go to Nest, fine, but let me look at other stuff. So the two things I wanted to try were, uh, first, I wanted to try HomeKit Secure Video. Because this, this is you know this is what Apple keeps talking about in the keynotes and everything, and it looks really cool, and I love the idea that I'm not sending my video to some like weird company's service. I'm sending it to Apple's weird service. Marco, you have a solution in your house already, but carry on. <laughs> Synology does this, man. Synology does this, but carry on, carry on. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> did you really get a vibra slap for Synology? I sure did. Oh my doesn't god! Have the, it doesn't have the elegance of the bell. I feel like it's a little. Maybe you need to get closer to the mic. It's it's more of an operation to pick it up, and you you, know, you got to hit it. In a yeah. <laughs> the, the other solution you have in your house is your what do you call it? Uh, what's your fancy Wi-Fi thingy? Ubiquity. Yeah, Ubiquity. They have they have security cameras too, right? Yes, they do. Uh, but the thing is, like, I don't have 
a NAS set up here. I don't want one. And I'm trying to get myself out of operating that kind of stuff. Like, I don't want, I don't want to deal with that. My, my needs are not big enough for that anymore. And so I, I don't want that kind of thing. Also, you know, the, the cameras that are, that are made for these kind of things are like, they're like, you know, bigger, bulkier, you know, like it's like, it's a kind of more serious stuff. And, and that's my needs aren't that high either. Even the ubiquity ones, I thought they were tiny, the ubiquity security cameras. So I was, maybe I'm, I don't have a sense of scale when I see them online. Oh, maybe I'll have to look, but, uh, but I, I, the impression I got was that they were like, you know, bigger, higher end stuff. But anyway, so the ones I, I, I first tried to get the Logitech circle view, uh, and, and, the problem with Logic Circle View is that it's it's like weirdly backordered and it's hard to get and there it was going to be a long wait and so I decided to take another risk also on the Eufy line E U F Y this is Anchor's home security brand um, so Eufy has a bunch of options and some of them are HomeKit compatible some of them most of them aren't um, but I decided you know let me I'll, I'll get both uh, so I'll get a Logitech Circle View and I'll get um, I, I got the Eufy Solo Indoor Cam C twenty four so. A point of comparison here. So, you know, as I, I said, Nest Cams are like, you know, 150 to 200 bucks usually. The Eufy indoor cams are $70 for a two-pack. Oh, my. And the outdoor models are like 80 to 150 The Logitech Circle View is 160 and is outdoor sort of. Um, and that sort of is important. The Logitech Circle View is outdoor compatible in the sense that the power cord is sealed around its back and it has no no openings. But the power adapter it comes with, which is a USB power adapter, is not waterproof. So you have to you can mount the camera in the in the elements, but then you have to run the cable to somewhere that's inside or sheltered. Because that's what I was thinking about with your house, I would not want to drill any holes in your house. Like, and I have just me, <laughs> right? Just yeah. So like, if if the requirement is you must drill a hole in your house, I would pass on it. No, and I I definitely wouldn't do that. I also, you know, I'm only trying to cover a couple of small areas here. Critically, the areas that I want to cover are not visible from the street because I don't want my house to look like a prison. Like I, I don't want to have like, look at my cameras, stay away. Like I don't want that. I just want, if people sneak under my house, I want them to be discouraged and leave all that aside. So here's how this stuff works in practice. So first of all, the Eufy home kit support is terrible. It does not work reliably. It was very hard to set up. I did eventually get it working. It kept like disconnecting. And what you find out when you, when you hook it up to home kit is that only a small subset of the camera's features are actually supported if it's in home kit mode. Uh, so I would I would not recommend the Eufy cameras for HomeKit. Um, I I did eventually, as I was playing with these over the last few weeks, my Logitech Circle Views did eventually come in, and so I I mounted a Circle View right next to a Eufy, looking at the same area, and I set up you know the the Eufy I set it up in just its own app, and the Logitech I set up and yes, I did put a Eufy indoor camera outdoors. <laughs> it's it's under shelter so it's fine <laughs> this is your big thing now you like to take non-outdoor electronics and put them outdoors because you think it's fine yeah I, well because the eufy ones that that are outdoor compatible they weren't shipping yet like the ones that i wanted um <laughs> is that is that an explanation like the, the problem here is putting thing electronics that aren't waterproof outside where there's water and you're like well the other <laughs> one wasn't shipping so it's okay <laughs> yeah well it's when when it's a two-pack for 70 bucks and i can put it under a shelter and <laughs> so practically practically disposable Mm-hmm. So um, so yeah so, so I I have like the Eufy and the, and the Logitech right next to each other to to kind of compare like how good these are and I have the Eufy running only through its own app now and what's interesting about the Eufy is that it they don't have well I guess I think they do have a cloud service but you don't have to use their cloud service 
they you can view their cameras remotely which i guess just like you know relays through them to like to like you know set up the ip connection but but your camera is not recording to their cloud your camera has local storage like you you put a micro sd card on it or some of the other ones have like built-in you know solid state storage so when you connect to your camera you're just having it play back from its own local storage and i like that a lot uh, because so this is i've thought about this like with the storage question mm-hmm and I know why people don't want like their private footage from like especially inside their house going up to a cloud thing, but anything where there's storage in your house, and especially if the storage is in the camera, I feel like almost defeats the purpose because it, you know, I don't know, I don't know how smart thieves are, but it's like, look, you just yank the camera off the wall, and now you've got the camera and all the footage. So you you commit the robbery, break into the house. Get the stuff, and on your way out, yank the camera off the wall, and you're on your way, and you've got the little SD card with the footage of you doing the crime, and you're all set. And if it's in your house, same deal. If they break into your house, they can just go find your servers, yank all the stuff. I mean, that's harder, obviously. Yank all the stuff out, and they got the footage. Where if it's recording constantly to the cloud, there's nothing they can do to your house that prevents the recording from happening. Never mind that having a recording of someone breaking into your house means nothing, because the police are never going to do anything about it, and you're never going to get your stuff back. But just let's pretend yeah, for oh, a second. I'll get to that. That's not the case. <laughs> I just, But yeah, you're right. I mean, and this is why I think HomeKit Secure Video is an interesting option, because HomeKit is streaming it to the cloud but here's a key difference for homekit secure video it is not a constant recording it is event-based so it like it doesn't record 24 7 to the cloud it's looking for motion and if it detects motion then it records you know for a, a, a some brief amount of time until it stops detecting uh, motion so you have only events so one thing i was curious to see it's like well how re- how responsive are they like if somebody walks into this area real fast, grabs my bike and walks out, is it going to react fast enough to start that recording and and send that to me or not? Uh, and and they, and so and if you actually want continuous recording, twenty four seven recording, Nest does that to the cloud, and Eufy's cameras will do it to their internal storage. Uh, obviously, it'll probably wear out your micro SD card faster, uh, but they will do it if it's an option. It's off by default, but that, so anyways, that, so that's an option you have with those. You don't have that option with HomeKit Secure Video. Basics here, the image quality on the modern cameras, the, the Eufy and the Logitechs, is great. Like, this is one of those areas where, like, the, the, the progress of technology, I can't believe the Eufy image quality for $70 for a two-pack. It's really good. Um, <laughs> the Logitech Circle View is a much more, like, almost a fisheye view. It's ultra-wide. I, th- I think it's actually 180-degree it's right there in the name, circle. And a circle, as we know, is 180 degrees. <laughs> well, the front of every camera is a circle. <laughs> the, the opening to the lens is a circle. A circle is in profile, not head-on. Yes, I know. Anyway. So. <laughs> and I swear, if someone writes and tells us a circle is 360. All right, anyway, go on. <laughs> I, sometimes I make a joke and I think better of it. Let me just save myself. I was trying to make a joke. Was it funny? No, but please. Okay, anyway, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, um, so the, the motion detection... The image quality, so the image quality is actually great. As I said, it's, the new ones, they're far better than whatever my old Nest cameras are, which, of course, that makes sense. That's like five years later. Um, the ultra-wide fisheye view of the Logitech is nice in a small space, um, but it's it's less useful in if your camera is going to be like higher up or further away from the area you're looking at. Um, and, and the problem with HomeKit Secure Video is that there's almost no cameras that support it. Like, the, there's only, a, it's like two or three models of cameras that are actually on the market that support it. And the Logitech is the only outdoor one uh, that's currently on the market. So that's that's a little bit, you know, the again, welcome to HomeKit, right? Like, you have <laughs> less choice. But I will say the Logitech, again, the Eufy, 
it has HomeKit support officially on this model, but it sucks. Don't use it. It doesn't, and I couldn't even get recordings working. Like I can only get live view working through HomeKit on the Eufy. The Logitech works perfectly. Like it is exactly what I want. So Logitech Circle View to HomeKit Secure Video is a great setup if that fits what you want. Again, it is an outdoor camera, but you have to. The power cord is something like maybe like about ten feet long. So you have to, you know, not put it too far from some kind of sheltered area where you could have the power adapter. Um, the video quality is great. And one thing I noticed for a while, and so I, I ran this like in our bike area, which gets multiple events per day because, you know, me and Tiff and Adam, we're, all, we're going in and out of the area all the time. Occasionally somebody will creep and try to look under our house. Uh, so we have like the actual use case there as well. All of this has happened a lot over the few weeks that I've had these cameras up. Uh, and so I'm, I have a good amount of data now. And I can tell you that the the person detection for them, like the motion, and, and so you, can, you, can, you can say like detect any motion or detect people or animals, I think one other thing. Um, and that works great. And in fact, between the Logitech using HomeKit and the Eufy camera using its own app, both of them would notify me at almost exactly the same time. Every time I would like go under there to get my bike out or somebody else would go under there, I was notified on time every time. And as far as I remember, I had zero false positives. There was never a time when either camera said it, it detected a person and there wasn't a person there. Uh, so good on them. Like, and, and there were also zero times where I went under there and it didn't detect me. So it seems like the the people detection for both for both Eufy and you know, HomeKit Secure Video, are it's great. And it worked so much better than Nest. I can't even tell you. <laughs> it's, so big, big thumbs up there. Um, the HomeKit, the Eufy one, you can you can configure it to uh, put a thumbnail, like a still thumbnail, in the notification payload, so that when you get the notification on your watch or your phone or whatever, you can pop it up right there and you can see that. Um, Eufy's app, you can also install on a Mac if you have an M1 Mac because it's in the Mac App Store because they didn't opt out of the M1 you know iPad app compatibility. So that's all really nice. Um, the Logitech one, it's it just it just shows up in the Home app. So for all the pluses and minuses that means <laughs> the Logitech one, it's right there in the home app. It's very convenient. Um, it does alert everyone in the home. So like Tiff was complaining that she's getting all these alerts, but, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I was going to say, one of the things I always see about home kit video is they always show the picture of someone watching TV and then someone's at the front door and this little picture in picture pops up on their Apple TV. And I don't want that. Is there a way to not make that happen? You know, I didn't actually see if that worked because there was never a time where we were watching TV when somebody did was under there. So you I, have I, to be watching Apple TV, I assume, too. Yes. Right? Well, we usually are, but yeah. But I, I will. Um, I'll take a look. I'll, I'll try to reproduce that and see if I can get it to work. I don't know if that feature is actually out yet, or if that's but, like. But that, I feel like that's an anti feature. I mean, I mean, you could probably turn it like, off. Like if you're watching TV, that's the last thing that I want. Like, sure, by all means, notify me on my phone. And if I have my phone on Do Not Disturb, that's a signal I don't even want to be notified about that. But don't pop it up on top of the TV show I'm watching. It's basically like letting uh, someone outside your house screw with your television show yeah right <laughs> but yeah i mean and, and that's you know one of the problems of HomeKit is that there aren't just aren't a lot of settings and options there's some and the ones they have do seem to work pretty well so i'm i'm happy with that overall um but also the eufy app has i mean yeah it's it's what you'd expect from like a manufacturer making an app it's not like the best ui but it works really well and the only the only thing that, that HomeKit really outclassed it on is that the HomeKit notifications would have video clips instead of image clips. So the HomeKit notifications, you could like hit little play on them or like, you know, open it up to, you know, make it, you know, push it so it opens it up. 
and you can actually see a, a brief video clip of what's going on. So that's really nice. Um, so again, the HomeKit just seems like a little bit of an upgrade in like how well it integrates with your Apple stuff, obviously. Uh, but the Eufy app is really good, and for 70 bucks for a two-pack, again, for the indoor camera, but still, that's really good. <laughs> and so I, I'm actually going to keep the Eufy ones, um, even though I think I'm going to go all HomeKit for the outside needs uh, with one little possible change in the future, which I'll get to in a second. So a couple of weeks ago, during recording this show, I got a notification on my watch <laughs> that somebody was spotted under the deck. And again, we are recording the show while this is happening. And I open up the app on the phone to see what's going on. And I see, you know, a young couple enjoying each other. And I'm like, oh, God, well, I don't want to deal with this. Oh, my. No, I mean, it wasn't, you know, quite that bad. But it would have, I mean, it would have gotten there. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was going in that direction. And so I'm like, all right. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I just want them to leave. Like, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to, like, call the cops either. And also, I'm recording a podcast. It's like, I don't want someone, there's like, I don't want to, I just don't want to deal with this. All right. So. At first, I messaged Tiff. I'm like, hey, can you go, like, you know, go down there and like, turn the light on or something? Um, and eventually, I learned she's not home. And so I'm like, okay, what do I do? And then I see in the Eufy app, there's one of those options that you can speak through the camera. Oh, nice. And I'm like, okay, great. So I just <laughs> I, I held down my mute button here to you guys. And I talked to the camera. And I, I said something like, you should leave. <laughs> nice. Like, what, am I, what do you say? Right. And you could tell they kind of like looked up for a second and then like kind of, you know, went back to it. I'm like, oh, crap. So I'm like, maybe that maybe they're just like, you know, they're going to get up in a second. They didn't. So if like, you know, a few <laughs> seconds later, I, I said something, something I like leave now or so I forget exactly what it was, something like that. Then they got up and left. Why didn't you, why didn't you say I am watching you on my security camera and I would like you to leave? Like you could say full sentences like you have to exp- spell it out because they're highly motivated not to stop what you're doing. <laughs> so you really need to you really need to make the case. I didn't I, I wasn't sure like how clear the voice would be coming through. You know, I, I don't want it to sound just like rah, 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 rah. So I, was, <laughs> I chose like few words, you know, anyway. And I, and I don't know what to say. What am I going to do? Like and the other thing is I don't want to sound like a jerk. Because what if they vandalize my house? You know, like, I don't like, it's like, there's no good way out of this, right? So anyway, so, you know, they, they left. And so, all right, fine. You know, problem solved. I didn't have to, like, involve the cops or go out there and interrupt the show or anything like that. So good. Okay. So that's, I caught that and I guess took care of it. Um, I also, you know, there were a number of occasions where we've seen people literally just walk up to our house and, like, peer under it and, like, look around. And then they see the camera and they kind of, like, run a little bit. Um, but like the other day, somebody came under the house where this, where the young couple was being that, and, um, some guy just comes under and like changes his bathing suit <laughs> Nice <laughs> in the middle of the day. And I'm like, that's spectacular. I mean, I, I, so I'm like, all right, I have cameras, they work, it's fine, but I wonder like, was I better off not knowing before? Like maybe like, is this actually serving an actionable role here like am i actually getting actionable information from these cameras and i'm not sure that i am like so if things were actually getting stolen or broken into or you know then we'd have a different story then i could try to bring these videos to the police and have what john said happen which is nothing um so again it's like i don't even know how actionable this would be and the other problem is that people don't seem to be seeing the cameras. So I think what I actually want to do is add like motion lights. I think that... No, no, not motion lights. You need... what you First of all, 
if you could buy like, and you know, when you go to Ikea and they have the little like cardboard television sets right, <laughs> to, to show the furniture, you don't need oh, cameras. You just need like the shell of a camera, like a little blown plastic thing that looks like a camera. They sell and what those. you need. What you need is signage. Have you learned anything from, if you've ever done anything like in upstate New York or whatever, that say this area under surveillance with a giant red arrow pointing to your fake camera, right? That might get people to leave. And motion lights can contribute to that because how are they going to read the sign when it's dark? Like, so that's part of it. But like, it's the reason people have all those signs on their lawn of like burglar, you know, the cameras only work as a deterrent if people know they're there. So you need signage. Yes. Well, but again, I don't want my house to look like a prison and I don't want it. And I don't want to be a jerk, right? So like, I'm trying to avoid that. Like, again, this is like my goal here is can I just make these problems go away? I don't I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want to, you know, look like I'm a massive Republican. Like, I, I just want people to not be doing weird stuff under my house. All right. So like what I'm going to try next is I, I just ordered the new Eufy camera that has a built in light on the camera. That's an, a real certified outdoor camera, so John is happy. Um, so I ordered one of those. I'm going to try that in one of these areas and see how it is. Which which model is that? I was looking at these Eufy things, and I can't find the model that you were talking about. It's two for 70 bucks or something. Tell, tell us model numbers. Two for 70 bucks is the Solo Indoor Cam C24. And the um, the one I just ordered is the L20. Yeah, I think it's the L20. It just came out, like, last week. So it's I'm, I'm hoping this will... This will improve things he's like i actually don't want video footage of people doing stupid stuff under my house i just want them to not do it or if they if they're if they're thinking about starting to do it maybe they run away before they like leave you know liquor bottles and stuff behind um so you know that's that's the main goal here so i'm going to try like some kind of motion light options and and see if that does better um because ultimately the cameras are working great but i'm not sure i actually am benefiting from having them in my life now, I do I do intend to keep at least the Eufy's going indoors sometimes because what I want is also during this few weeks that I've had these cameras, we had to evacuate because of a hurricane coming up the coast. And so I set up the indoor cams indoors, John, to look at areas of my house that I was afraid might be like water leak risks or damage risk areas if a hurricane came through that was really strong. And so I was able, as we were not here anymore because we were evacuated, I was able to monitor how my house was doing in the storm. And that was great. I was very happy to have that ability. And again, to have that with no you know, cloud service monthly fee kind of stuff, to have that just be like on these cameras in here, that was awesome. And so that was, again, for 70 bucks for a two-pack, highly recommended. <laughs> That's kind of the same thing, though, as your question about what value am I getting? Like, being able to see in real time as a lawn chair comes through your windows, I mean, I suppose it could be uh, diverting and entertaining, but the bottom line is you're not there. There's nothing you can do about it, and you're going to come back to your well, house. But and we know people who are here, including our contractor. Like We, we know people who could who could come and... You would, so you're going to you send know. someone over and say, hey, a chair just went through our, our uh, sliding glass door. Could you go over there and, what, remove the chair and put plywood up on our house? Like, it's just, I would, Not like, during the storm, but like, you know, afterwards, I could, yeah. I could say like, oh, you know, we can't come back for another day or two or whatever. Like, can you go, you know, put plastic over there? You know, like, I, I, obviously, I hope that never happens, but... It does provide a level of like peace of mind to to be able to look directly at like here look here is my sliding door that leaks water during heavy storms sometimes and it's look it's not leaking 
Yeah, I guess it's, it's better to know that it's safe. Like you want to you want a positive result. If you have a negative result, that doesn't really help. It's almost like, well, we'll find out when we get there. But the positive result is you can sleep easy knowing that nothing bad happened to your house. Right. I was nervous as hell all night and I kept I like woke up a couple times and checked the cameras. And it's, it's like a baby monitor. Like you, you wake up, you look at it. You know, it's like that's because when because you're nervous. Right. So that's it, it made sense. It, that's not the kind of thing that would be healthy to do all the time. But in a situation where like, oh, I, I live near the coast and there's a hurricane like that's that's a big thing to do like that, that that helps a lot um so i i definitely will love keeping the indoor cams around for that kind of thing when you know if we can't be here and some kind of severe weather is happening or something that's a great time to have indoor cams i do not intend to have indoor cameras in my house all the time that's that to me is not the kind of lifestyle that i want to leave um but uh, the outdoor cams hopefully i can find some kind of balance with you know maybe motion light integration to serve as the, the deterrent role that i want them to serve without being too oppressive yeah, I feel like you can mount all sorts of like what would otherwise be fairly ugly and, and, you know, like oppressive stuff under the bottom of your house where it's not visible until you go under there to change your bathing suit. And then you see the big sign with the arrow pointing that says smile for the camera, right? And then the motion light comes on the one under your house. And hopefully you can also mount the stuff under your house to point at the bike area. You know what I mean? Like no one can see that unless you are, in fact, trespassing and wandering around under your house, right? But otherwise your house looks normal. I mean, that's how they are now. The problem is they're too subtle now. <laughs> like, I know, I know. But I'm saying like you should you should be feel free to get less subtle with big scary signs and humor and, and motion lights <laughs> because it doesn't make your house look like a prison because it's all underneath. Well, but I also like I don't want like every time I go get my bike out, I don't want to <laughs> have a sign saying smile for the camera. Like that's such a jerk move. Like I because like I always like <laughs> I, I on my on my old dog walk route, there is this house that has you've probably seen these it's like it's like a cast iron thing you stick in the ground that is a silhouette of a dog pooping and it says under it no (laughs) (laughs) they've made their house ugly right like these people are so obsessed with dogs not pooping on their lawn that they have a statue of a dog pooping on their lawn like that to me that's ridiculous like i i I would never want that 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 to me is like a weird like toxic attitude thing so i don't want an intimidating sign in front of my bike all the time that i'm going to multiple times a day and that my whole family is going to like i don't want signs and be like look look at the camera you're under surveillance like that's that's not the kind of thing i want to do so that's why i'm hoping like i'm hoping a a motion light setup combined with a, a visible camera should probably make this a balance that that works enough but that doesn't make me it doesn't like you know make me feel like i live in a prison take a look at the the most obnoxious dog uh you know deterrent sign i've ever seen in my life i just put it in the slack oh my god this is a whole paragraph yes very poorly written casey would you like to read this because because i feel like it has some of your my goodness (laughs) i also like the the dollar sign s that reminds me of you casey would you like to do a dramatic reading here hi we hope you're enjoying your dog walk just in an off chance, you don't realize that what your dog does in our lawn costs us hundreds dollar sign letter S every year to fix. We assure you it does. Please keep your dog off our lawn. If you still decide to let your dog use our lawn, please smile for the camera. Have a nice day. They've got a comma splice. They've got dollar sign S and they've got a lot of attitude. And can you imagine like having this on your house? So you see it all the time. Like that's that's not the kind of attitude. Like I, I just I don't want that kind of attitude. You know, see, and this is this gets into the same problem Marco was just saying before. If you still decide to let your dog use our lawn, please smile for the camera. Okay, what the hell is the camera gonna do? 
Are you going to use the photo to track me down? And what? Nothing's going to come of this. You can't get anything to happen from having footage of something. Maybe if you're if you're the neighbor down the street and you'll be like, now I know the neighbor down the street is doing it. So what? Now you're going to sick the police on your neighbor? You're going to sue your neighbor? Like, this is the type of well, people... Then, like, like, and what do you have at the end of the day? You have a bunch of videos of dog pooping. Like, why... <laughs> Why? Who wants that? Right. And then you have to use them as evidence to say this dog is doing hundreds of dollars worth of damage to our lawn. You're going to bring your neighbor to small claims court. It's like, what kind of <laughs> what kind of life do you want to lead at that point? Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's like, I don't want like you don't want if you're so obsessed with dogs not pooping on your lawn, but then you spend time in your day reviewing footage of dogs pooping on your lawn <laughs> and, and planning your law, planning your lawsuits. Right. Or whatever you're whatever you're going to do, like it turn them into the police. Like it's just. Yeah, you're not going to be a popular neighbor, and you may want to pick your battles slightly different. And honestly, I walked past their lawn. There was no dog poop on their lawn. Like, I think uh, maybe it's, it's a different neighborhood than I live in, but I think everyone around here is pretty good about picking up our dog poop. People should pick up the dog poop, for sure. But that sign feels like overkill. Maybe it works. Maybe that's why there's no dog poop on their lawn. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe no dogs live in this neighborhood, and they're just, they're just waiting for somebody. Like the person who buys a gun just waiting for someone to break into their house so they can be a hero. <laughs> God. So, Marco, I have to ask you, why... Why didn't you look at like power over Ethernet powered cameras? Because I know almost nothing about any of this, and I have not started my you know research or anything. But it seemed to me like if I were to do it, I would do something that is powered via PoE and would would be streamed either to my Synology or I am I am right there with you with um, HomeKit Secure Video or whatever it's called. I, I think one of those two options. So. If you do PoE, then it makes a lot of the indoor-outdoor, in terms of power anyway, go away, doesn't it? Or is that, is that not solving the problem I think it's solving? So you'd have PoE Yuffie. <laughs> Yuffie is such a terrible name. It's like someone trying to hold in a sneeze. No, I mean, so if I was doing like a really serious setup for something that had larger needs, or if I was putting a camera somewhere where there, was, there weren't nearby outlets for USB cables, fine. But these cameras... They need like a micro USB one amp. Like you, like you can feed them off of anything, and so their their, their needs just aren't that high. Um, now, as you get into things like cameras with bright lights in them, um, then you have more serious needs. And that being said, usually most of the cameras in, in this space, that are at least the outdoor ones, at least most of them have batteries. And the idea usually is because they're not doing continuous recording, because they're doing event based recording, like you know motion based recording, then they can run on battery for like months at a time without needing to be recharged. Um, some of them have batteries and USB, and you can run USB to them if you want to, um, to, you know, to have continuous power or not. Um, so there's lots of options here. Um, and this, again, like, this is why like, I was actually pretty impressed with Eufy's offerings if you don't need HomeKit compatibility, because they have tons more models that don't have HomeKit. Um, and because like, you know, the HomeKit secure video thing, it works great, again, as I said, but there's just so few hardware options to choose from. So if you have certain needs like that, like you have way more options in other people's ecosystems. But yeah, the POE stuff, my needs just aren't that that high. You know, if I if I my main need here is a deterrent, and if I really need like you know perfect crisp 4K video to to turn into the police and have them you know analyze it like CSI, like that's one thing. But that's not reality <laughs> for if, definitely not for me, and theoretically for not for anybody. <laughs> like that's that's not a kind of thing that I really need. Um, so in this case, you know, deterring people from stealing our bikes and having fun under our deck, um, that's, that's all I really want to do. Well, then to build on your call for listeners' help with regard to Adam and programming, if listeners, you have a 
power over Ethernet powered camera that works well with HomeKit and or Synology surveillance station, then I would like to hear about it via Twitter, please and thank you. So uh, do let me know. See, I, w- I don't even want to use something called surveillance station. Like that to me, <laughs> that's so like imposing. I don't want that. HomeKit secure video is so much more friendly. <laughs> It is. It's the same it thing, is. though. It's cameras that record people doing stuff under your neck. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I, I My dad uses um, surveillance station with like three or four cameras in and, or in and out of his house, and he seems to think it works pretty well. Um, I have only very briefly looked at you know his setup, and I haven't quizzed him about what he's done and how he's done it and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, if you have a suggestion for a camera, indoor or outdoor, uh, please let me know. Probably, I'm probably more concerned about out than in. Uh, I, actually, I am more concerned about out than in. But if you have a suggestion... Uh, please let me know on Twitter. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Squarespace, Linode, and Fastmail. And thanks to our members who support us directly. You can join us at atp.fm slash join. We will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. John didn't do Search Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them At C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss M-A-R-C-O A-R-M Marco Armand S-I-R-A-C USA Syracuse It's accidental Accidental They didn't mean to Accidental Accidental Tech podcast So long So Casey, it says here in the show notes You are trying out Bottom Dock Is that code for something? Is it, It's something that happens under my deck Right, <laughs> <laughs> Well played. Uh, no, this is uh, with regard to uh, Connected Episode 358, which I think it was a couple weeks ago at this point. And the title of the episode was Roast My Doc. And um, this was, I think it was Mike and Steven. I think Federico was out that week, if I recall correctly. And um, and they were you know making fun of each other's docs. And I have very strong opinions, as I am wont to do, uh, about where the doc should be. And for forever and a day... I have been of the opinion that the dock should be on the left-hand side of the screen and it should be always auto-hidden. I am, and this is where everyone's going to get very angry at me, I do like magnification. I am a magnification user, which I know drives everyone nuts. Uh, I don't have it magnifying very much, but I do like it. And that is the way I had my dock. Now, I am not really looking to turn this into a roast my dock, uh, like uh, reprise, if you will. But just for context, uh, John, where do you keep your dock, generally speaking? Uh, bottom on desktops and on laptops, either bottom or right. Doing it on the left is ridiculous because we live in a country where the predominant language is left to right. So why does that make the left ridiculous? Because that's where your windows start with the text in them. And I don't want to dock overlapping them and I don't want to have to avoid it. That's prime real estate. That's why the cursor starts in the upper left-hand corner of the Mac screen when you boot. Or <laughs> I think it still does. But like that's that's the origin. Upper left. Okay. You read, okay. read from left to right, top to bottom in English. 
And we're all reading, using our Macs in English. So left-hand dock is ridiculous. Now you hide it, so it's not that big of a deal. It's not really messing with your window space. So it's whatever. But anyway, that's what I do. Bottom everywhere, pretty much. But if I do it on a side, because I have a small laptop screen, I do it on the right side. And pin, right. to the, pin to the bottom, back when I could pin. Uh, yeah, whatever, whatever. All right, and Marco, what's your situation? I am a left docker with no auto-hide, uh, except on laptops where I do auto-hide. So interesting. This, you know, it's I. I am a side docker, which is for the same reason that almost everyone, except apparently you and John, but almost everybody would choose the side because we usually have much more width in our screens these days than height. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly how I landed on a side dock myself. It occurred to me, wait, what am I doing? To, and this is you know early on in my Mac life when I would not auto hide. What am I doing? having this dock taking up, you know, all of this precious vertical real estate when every Mac I own is is a wide screen. So why would I not put it on the side? Well, I can I can give you an answer to that question. So everyone, yes, our, the screens are wider than they are tall unless you have an XDR and rotate it, which is a possibility. But still, they're wider than they are tall. But that doesn't mean that vertical space is more valuable to you than horizontal because being able to make a window an extra inch tall might have less value than you, to you than having an extra inch of width in which to arrange more windows. So maybe you could have three nicely sized window, but oh, the dock is overlapping one of them, so I have to make one window narrower than I want it. Whereas if you have to cut an inch off the bottom, it's probably not that big a deal because in general, width is more important than height when reading stuff because you want a reasonable size width to contain the content. But of course, you're always going to scroll, especially if they're web browser windows or text editor windows. There's always more vertically, but you want to get a good size horizontally. So I'm not saying this is wrong. Like, you know, the, again, there is more horizontal space and you can divide it up how you want. But I would introduce the thought technology that it could be in your situation, depending on how you do window management, that horizontal space is more valuable to you, even though there is more of it around than vertical space. I understand what you're saying. I, I can't say I agree with you. And, and I reached the same well, conclusion as Marco. That try I bottom dock for a while, see what you think. Well, it's funny you bring that up because it occurred to me well, I'm not doing the always visible dock anymore, and I haven't for I don't even know how long. I don't recall when I made the switch from always visible to auto hide, but it was many, many, many years ago. Do you have the and animation uh, cranked down? Like animation no, delay? No. no so no. using the default animation yes. delay with auto hide, I find that a little bit. I feel like I'm waiting around. And if people don't know that you can do that, you can make the animation delay basically zero. So as soon as your cursor hits the edge, the dock just appears fully formed in its position. And I feel like. Auto hide in general, if you do that, the edge is so much less important because the dock isn't getting in the way of any of your windows because it's not visible all the time. And that's exactly it. It occurred to me, well, wait a second, since I'm auto hiding anyway, it doesn't matter what side of the screen I'm on. I can put it wherever I want because it's not taking up real estate always, 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 always. And so for the last couple of weeks now, I've been trying bottom dock and my my probably decade, maybe less than that, but many years of muscle memory is I'm still reaching for the left-hand side of the screen as my like default idle gesture. But I think I kind of like having bottom dock again, especially since for better or worse, I often have many different applications running and my dock is often relatively large. So I wanted to encourage those of you who maybe had very strong feelings about side dock when you were not auto hiding. If you're an auto hide person like I am, maybe consider uh, using the bottom dock again. And one advantage to what you just said is like now you can, you know, you have more room for your dock. You can also make your dock bigger. Like I, I like looking with nice icons. I mean, granted, we're not in a good age of mac icons right now because the current <laughs> predominant style is pretty boring but i you know i still use custom icons for some things or whatever it's nice to see pretty icons for your apps and if you're auto hiding 
like why not have big meaty click targets when they come up right yeah, make it make yeah. them really big they'll shrink if there's not enough room right but you've got all that room down there um and I, for magnification i haven't tested this in recent years but magnification as originally implemented doesn't actually make the click targets any bigger so if you want to make the click targets bigger you kind of have to actually just make the dock bigger but again if you're auto hiding no big deal so i would say try that try giving yourself a little bit bigger dock than you expect um, and then maybe try turning uh, magnification off and see if you prefer that. Because I, I get where you like the magnification. It feels like it's bigger and it's more, the one you're going to click on is more prominent and you can kind of make sure you're on the one that you wanted. But if you just made all the icons as big as your current magnification size, try that for a little bit. Mm, I take your point. Anyway, I just thought it was a fun observation because I was very, very devout in my side dock only. You would be a monster to use the bottom dock until I had that epiphany slash apostrophe that uh, that I could put it on the bottom with auto hide and everyone's still happy. So, or you could be like me and have two docks on your screen at all times. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, talk about bad like hard habits to break, like from you know from <laughs> macOS eight whatever. Like I'm so used to having the list of running applications in a little, you know, vertical, uh, like a little, uh, running application icons in a vertical list in the upper right corner of my screen, and my I, my cursor just goes up there. And so I have yes, switch glass, my silly little thing that basically has a little icons for all my running apps in the upper right, and then I also have the dock, which also features all my running apps plus a bunch of folders plus the trash can. Uh, as I've said many times, I would love to not have to run the dock. But I do because a bunch of the stuff that the doc does can't be done with public APIs anywhere else. And no one is willing to maintain, including me, to maintain an application that somehow hacks into the private APIs to get the notification badges and the menus and the, the notification bounces and all the other things that only the doc can do. Uh, you know, so I'm kind of stuck with it. But hey, that's another reason I have this giant screen uh, I can afford to have two always visible things showing all my running apps <laughs> and still have plenty of room for everything. <laughs> 